Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. And we are joined by our favorite disembodied voice, Alabama, <laughs> is here. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman, of course. It's a beautiful day, and we have a very special guest for you today. Our returning champion is here. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Zach Bush, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Give it up for the good doctor. Yeah. Oh, Heck yeah. Dr. Bush, it's so great to have you back here. Honored. We did an episode recently, well, a few months ago, about simplifying death. And we talked about some difficult questions. Ryan called me last week and he said, hey, Zach's going to be in town. And he has some shocking information that he wants to share with us. And we're going to get to that later in the podcast. But we reached out to our audience and said, hey, do you have any questions for Dr. Zach Bush? And so I thought that'd be a great place for us to start. By the way, if you uh, have a question for our show, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording to podcast at minimalists.com. Let us know if you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Sherry in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My name is Sherry Torres and I'm a new Patreon subscriber. I am 61 years young. I'm postmenopausal, post-hysterectomy, 100% cancer-free. I want to have great gut health. Actually, I need to have great gut health. A few years back, I suffered for about a year with lymphocytic colitis um, as a result of regular ibuprofen use. I am now off all NSAIDs of any kind. Don't touch them anymore. But every time I go shopping for probiotics, I'm completely overwhelmed with all the different types, all the different dosages, all the different maladies that each one promises to combat. My question is, is there a non-confusing, non-overwhelming guide to adding probiotics to my diet? One of our listeners, Nastasia, wrote in. She said that um, we should do an episode about decluttering the gut. Mm -hmm. And I found that fascinating. And since Zach is here and he is an expert on gut health, I thought this was a great question to start with. So Dr. Bush, when we're talking about probiotics, that's a, a sliver of the picture. We're talking about gut health. There's so much that goes into it. When in doubt, I tend to avoid the synthetic route, whether that is... Mm. Um, uh, ibuprofen, as she mentioned, I mean, any of these sort of prescription or over-the-counter drugs that are abused often damage the gut, but there's so many other things that damage our gut. Can we talk about some of those things? Yeah, to, to reflect on the question there, you know, we've got somebody who's gone through some health crisis and you've got multiple surgeries and you have history of probably intensive drug treatment on top of that, radiation therapy, all this that we put people through when they have something like cancer. And so, uh, Western medicine, which is my background, 17 years in academia there in academic medicine, practicing not only the clinical side, but also basic scientists working on chemotherapy development at the University of Virginia over the years. And I was trained into this belief that um, the system of the body was actually really predictable. Like, you know, here's, here's the receptor, we can hit that with a drug and this mm -hmm. will happen. And so we had this very Newtonian 
training that here it is, this is the machine, you push this lever and this happens, it's very predictable. And so they want you to believe that because that's the only way that we could actually intervene as a reductionist approach of a pharmaceutical industry to actually, you know, create change. And they they did this in such a way that uh, you never see the forest for the trees, right? And so you're so focused on your one tree that you can't realize that you're part of a larger system, whether you're a, a drug developer or a clinician, you're always just seeing this small segment and you can't see the forest for the trees, which will be a theme that will play often through today's episode, I think, is we, we never quite get to see the full picture and therefore mm. we keep making these reductionist decisions about the world. Mm. And therefore we can go down these deep rabbit holes of belief, not realizing that we left the rails four decades past. Mm. And so now in a pharmaceutical world, we're trained, here's a receptor that causes high blood pressure. And here's a drug that interrupts that pathway. And so this is going to lower your blood pressure. But what is missed there is that there's this huge cascade of events that are occurring around that receptor. Mm. And we forget that this is a symphony of 70 trillion cells that are dancing with 1.4 quadrillion bacteria that are dancing with 14 quadrillion mitochondria, mm. all of which are different species that are interplaying through genetics, through uh, hormonal cascades, through something called uh, redox chemistry or uh, this kind of cellular system of, of wireless communication. So you have this exquisite network and then you take something like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which is a sledgehammer on just a very narrow spectrum of, of biology and the whole thing gets out of balance. And so the experience of I've taken these NSAIDs for a while and then my body went haywire is predictable, unfortunately. And NSAIDs, just for, for clarification, can you, can you talk more about yeah, that? Yeah, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, the common ones are ibuprofen, you know, the brands are things like Motrin and the like. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're in contrast to, to Tylenol, which is acetaminophen, which is a, a pathway that disrupts liver metabolism. This is a, uh, something that disrupts the cascade of inflammation within the cell. Mm. And uh, what we find is these things do disrupt the ecosystem of the body. And there's a lot of common over-the-counter drugs that do this. I would say that ibuprofen is most commonly abused that is directly damaging, but aspirin is right up there with high damage to the gut lining. Uh, there's a lot of people that believe that aspirin trying to get onto the market today would have never made it by FDA regulations because it causes so much gut bleeding, so much mortality from aspirin. But here we've had it for 100 years, so it kind of got grandfathered into the process. But it's a dangerous you know, compound that really screws up a whole you know, slew mm -hmm. of, of issues in the gut and beyond. So we take these medications. Another one that's very common now that you can actually buy by the near gallon at Costco is, is Miralax for constipation. Mm -hmm. And so, ironically, that's a common complication of chronic abuse of anti-inflammatories and like. So you're taking anti-inflammatories, then your bowels start to get off, the neurology gets screwed up, you start to get constipation patterns, and now you're taking Miralax. And both of those drugs do disrupt the really foundation of gut health, which is the tight junctions, which are the Velcro-like proteins that keep your gut as a coherent barrier to the outside world. And so what we start to realize is that the pharmaceutical industry in its effort to intervene on complex systems starts to disrupt the regenerative quality of the body. The body should be repairing constantly. And your expression of disease is going to be equal to your rate of injury versus your rate of repair. And as your rate of repair starts to go down, your rate of injury starts to accumulate damage. And that damage accumulates into what we call chronic diseases. Right. And so these anti-inflammatories and many other drugs on the market, Miralax and the like, unintentionally start to 
fuel the chronic disease epidemic because mm. it's slowing the repair process down. And so that would be things like your ibuprofen, your aspirin, they're slowing down repair process. Anything that disrupts the normal acute inflammatory reaction, which is your reaction to injury, if you start to dull that, you're not, you're not addressing the injury. Mm. And so you're starting to accumulate disease. But like you said, it goes far beyond the pharmaceuticals. The other side of the pharmaceutical industry is the chemical agriculture side. And so the herbicides and pesticides that saturate our food system today are antibiotics and anti-inflammatories. And Mm -hmm. so they actually are functioning to destroy the same pathways, but now at, you know, a ecosystem level much greater than what might happen if you just ingested an ibuprofen. You're now ingesting in your water, your food system, you're actually breathing it, it's raining on you. About 85% of the rain measured in the U.S. is positive for glyphosate, the most common weed killer herbicide on the market. And that's a very potent antibiotic. And Mm -hmm. so as we start to be steeped in these chemicals, the air we breathe, 85% of the air we breathe contaminated, So every breath you take now is starting to diminish your ecosystem repair and your ecosystem communication. And for that, we end up with this diminished capacity for regeneration and repair. And unfortunately, that's not just happening in the human gut. It's also happening in the gut of the world, which is the soil. And so our soil systems, which is the gut of the planet and responsible for the whole metabolism and repair process of the planet is decrementing at the same rate that our gut is. And so... For this, we see the collapse of ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So all this talk about CO2 in the atmosphere, all that, that's that's chasing literally after the wind. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's a very tiny fraction, 0.04% of our atmosphere is CO2. Mm-hmm. That's not causing extinction. What's causing extinction is the destruction of the gut of the planet and humans on it. Mm-hmm. And so we are losing the ecosystem communication, the ecosystem regenerative capacity of the planet. And this woman is experiencing that. Mm-hmm. And her question is around probiotics. Mm-hmm. And she said, go to the market and we have a $47 billion industry now built around probiotics globally. And it turns out that probiotics are three or seven species that you take in very high dose. So you're taking billions and billions. They'll brag about it too on the label, 50 billion copies, 100 billion copies of this bacteria, this bacteria. (laughs) Every time I see that, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like (laughs) 50 billion what? Anyway. That's it. And, yeah. and you can't wrap your mind around that number either. Like nobody actually can picture a billion bacteria. Wow, it's a lot. I think I'll go for the more. Right. Yeah. That, that's the other Worse disease better. we have is more, more, yeah. more, right? So well, more probiotics, that's probably going to help me out as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's the minimalist approach to gut health <laughs> is really starting to back up and say, well, what does the forest look like? What does an ecosystem of the gut look like? And the answer is pretty amazing. The American Gut Project, which is mistermed because most of the work's been done over in Africa, but they've been looking at what is the ideal gut flora look like of a human. And so they're studying hunter-gatherer tribes over in Kenya and other places to realize that an ideal gut that's really in in touch with its ecosystem, in touch with its food directly, it's hunting, it's touching the hide of the animals it eats, it's touching the honeycomb that it consumes, it's touching the nature from which its foods come. 40,000 species of bacteria is pretty typical measurement. And and our genomics aren't even very good yet. Like we're probably off by... 10x at least. So somewhere in that 40,000 to 400,000 is probably the right number of species of bacteria alone. And that's logarithmically outnumbered by the number of fungi, yeast, protozoa, all these other organisms in the gut. The American gut, in contrast, has 10,000 species at best, Mm. typically more like 5 to 8,000 species. So we've lost 75% 
as Western consumers, Western eaters, we've lost 75% of the workforce or 75% of the ecosystem. And, and there are a few reasons wow. for that. Just to, to clarify here, one is what you mentioned, the, the overuse of over-the-counter prescription drugs. For example, I had a doctor who gave me an antibiotic for 13 years that I took daily totally decimated my gut. You couple that with the glyphosates and other pesticides that are in conventional foods. A regular tomato you get from Ralph's, if it's conventional, it's been sprayed by glyphosate or some other pesticide. And one dose of that, probably not a big deal to the average human being. We continue to assault ourselves over and over and over. And then, of course, the foods we're eating, the heavily processed foods, don't. They they also don't help with the uh, the overall gut health of the human being. That's right. And so what we've done is say, well, here's the probiotic. Here's three species that will fix your gut. And so we give you billions of copies of three, or now there's like seven species probiotics on the market. And there's even like Garden of Life, I think has a 25 species one. Mm. But 25 species at billions of copies when you're supposed to have 40,000 species is the exact same thing that we've done with farming is Mm. here's a monocrop of corn, soybean, and wheat. You go plant those three species over 125 million acres, what could possibly go wrong? And the answer is, well, the ecosystem starts to fundamentally collapse because you eliminate all the biodiversity of, of, mm. of the flora on the, on the planet. In the same way, we go in with a monocrop of probiotics and say, well, here's three species. And then the, it's, and you can see that all the marketing companies, even the, the really fancy new, you know, probiotics on the market are launched by marketing teams, not by scientists. Right. Mm. And it's like, okay, we have an idea. It's going to look more beautiful and we're going to go after this thing and, and so these marketing teams come up with the new look, the new feel, the new you know, messaging about, because guy health is a massive, you know, near trillion dollar industry coming on here. And so everybody's got a lot of space to compete. But the scientists started to get concerned, you know, decades back of like, wow, I wonder if this is even good for somebody, you know, in, in the 1970s and 80s, starting to pound people with billions of copies of three species. And so the studies started to get done. And finally, the definitive ones got published in 2018 to show that we were actually diminishing the microbiome diversity and recovery after antibiotics using probiotics. And so the probiotic after two weeks of antibiotics, two weeks of antibiotics to start with will decimate your ecosystem by another 80%. So you're already missing 75% of your ideal gut. You take an antibiotic for two weeks and you've lost another 80%. Wow. So you're down to a couple thousand species of bacteria and your gut's now going to struggle back to get back to its baseline of 10,000 species. And the studies that needed to be done that finally got done were placebo-controlled. And so they took sugar pills, basically, and they showed complete gut recovery back to a baseline within 30 days Hmm. versus probiotic that followed out six months still had never recovered. Wow. And so they showed the same level of suppression of the microbiome with a probiotic as the antibiotic had caused. Now, let me ask you, does that also apply to natural probiotics? So like, for example, I will drink kefir daily, like a raw coconut kefir or a raw dairy kefir. I assume that's a little bit different than the pill antibiotic. Probably not, unfortunately. Mm. So most of your most of your yogurts and kefirs are single species ferments, and so they'll add acidophilus or one of these you know classic fermentation things. To get away from that, you have to have what would be called a wildly fermented uh, product. And wild fermentation is a process where you expose the sugar water basically to air, mm-hmm. 
and the air is delivering thousands of species of yeast, bacteria, all kinds of flora, and then you start to get it. And so this is the classic sauerkraut that was made in a crock in your grandmother's basement, right? maybe your great-grandmother's basement. But crocks were like handed down generation to generation because it was one of the most important ways to preserve food. Mm. And we did that right up until the 1950s when refrigeration got so cheap and universal that we just got lazy and we started doing vinegar pickles and things that could be stuck in the fridge and not necessarily kept at room temperature for for years. Mm. And so that loss of fermentation in the wild setting led to a decrement of true gut health for us in the 1950s, 60s. And then we started adding herbicides, pesticides over those decades and we started destroying ecosystems. So it was a loss of a food culture and the, and the innovation of antibiotics as a crop treatment that really started to destroy the ecosystem of health. And so that's where we see the sudden acceleration of collapse of ecosystems and global warming and all these stories starting to come out in the 1980s, 90s. And you start to see this, the emergence of the chronic disease epidemics of the 1990s that now explodes. And that, so that's autism in our children. It's asthma in our children. It's eczema in our children. It's attention deficit disorder. All that stuff was un, untold before 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1992, we, we start spraying wheat with glyphosate directly to dry it out right before harvesting it and we suddenly get gluten sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And so we don't actually have gluten sensitivity. We have glyphosate sensitivity. And so we've been poisoned by our own agricultural system, and this is leading to this destruction of gut health. And then we answer it with probiotics. Mm. No problem. Here's your three species. Mm. And Mm. so what we've done as a laboratory for the last 10 years is we've been utilizing not bacteria, but the communication network of bacteria as an answer to gut health. And so we extract these small carbon molecules made by bacteria and fungi in soil systems and deliver that back to the human body so they can get that cell-cell communication back in touch. And when you get communication, you get recovery. You accelerate repair across all systems. And so we've been studying the influence of this cellular communication of bacteria on human cell systems for the last 15 years. And it just explodes the the rate of repair. And like I said, rate of injury versus rate of repair is how young are you? How much disease do you carry? And so to see people accelerate their youth, accelerate their repair process has been really exciting and humbling because it's not a human system. It's a microbial system that accelerates human repair. Right. And so in the end, what we're really saying is the belief that there's such a thing as human health is inaccurate. Mm. There's planetary health, there's ecosystem health, and we are an expression of that ecosystem. Mm. Human life and human health is an expression of an ecosystem of millions of species, fungi, yeast, bacteria, all the rest. And so we are an expression of nature. And until we come to terms with that, we're going to continue to battle nature. We're going to war against that nature. Yes. Mm. Can we get practical for a second for Sherry to wrap up her question? Because she's at a point now where she's probably suffering to some extent. And that suffering is not because of her gut health necessarily, but it is exacerbated significantly by a damaged gut. And so someone like that, as opposed to saying, hey, here are your probiotics, have a nice day. What do we tell her from a practical standpoint? Yeah. So getting back in touch with your ecosystem is the answer. And so looking at the fermented foods being a good example for pennies, you can, it's water and, and, and salt. And so you create water salt combination. It's called a brine. And then you put your cabbage in there for $2. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, you have a huge vat of sauerkraut that would have cost you 25 bucks at the grocery store. And so for pennies, you can start to do gut recovery by being in communication with the air around you and allowing that air to begin to do it. Keeping in mind that the air that you're breathing may be contaminated with herbicides and everything. So it's really like 
how do we start to get the intelligence back into our air system? And the answer is get back in touch with nature. And so an interesting concept would be take that crock, that towel over it, and go and take a hike in the woods and mm-hmm. set that under a tree in, in the woods for a few hours and see what that forest wants to deliver to your gut through that. And so getting back in touch with nature through a literal reconnect, a literal reintroduction of what nature has and its diversity is a key feature. And so the hashtag breathe your biome has been one of the big things that I launched 10 years ago. And the concept is if you are out in nature in different ecosystems, every minute you're out there, you're introducing new life to your body. And for that, you're diversifying the body. So fermented foods, getting out in nature, hiking in it, swimming in it, diving in it, whatever you're doing, get out in nature and touch it. And then if you want a deep dive on the science of that soil microbial communication network, intelligenceofnature.com can get you that big body of science that we've developed over the last 15 years. And you can start to drink some of that, you know, small amounts, just a few few milliliters, you know, a teaspoon a day can start to move you in that direction of reconnection to the communication network of life. And so that accelerates the tight junction repair and builds that barrier between the outside world and your immune system to reignite that healthy relationship between you and the world around you, the world within you. We now know that there's an ecosystem within you as well, not just in your gut, but the brain has bacteria, fungi, yeast in it that are a healthy ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so these systems that we thought were sterile and had to be sterile to be healthy, we're now realizing are these diverse ecosystems. And, and as we kill the ecosystem, we lose health. And so as you reintegrate into the nature from which you have emerged, you're going to rediscover yourself. And so for, for you you know, here coming out of chronic disease, the chronic disease was there as an invitation back into nature. And so for all the fearful statistics and all that, nature is just wrapping us up in her arms saying, come on back. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Sherry, we'll put a link to any of the resources that we mentioned today throughout the podcast in the show notes over at theminimalists.com. So you'll have access to them over there. And now a word from our sponsor. <laughs> oh, that would be Laughter. absolutely awful. Thankfully, advertisements suck. We don't do any ads. Y'all know that. Big shout out to our Patreon subscribers. I wanted to interrupt this podcast episode with Dr. Zach Bush. We're talking about decluttering the gut. And I wanted this to be the definitive place where people can go to optimize their gut, to heal their gut. Mm. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I've gone through some terrible gut health over the last four and a half years, and I've been able to nurse myself back to health to heal my gut to a great extent, and in fact, heal my life in general, because gut health is health. If you don't have gut health, you will suffer. That's the biggest thing I've learned over the last five years. So I wanted to Step in here for just a moment, interrupt the podcast with Dr. Zach Bush and talk about some things. I didn't want to interrupt the flow with him. And so talk about some things I know he would be on board with, but these are things that help me specifically. They may or may not help you if you're listening to this episode, but these are the things that help me heal my gut. The first thing I did was I eliminated anything that damages my gut microbiome, anything that damages the mucosal wall of the intestinal tract. So that's a one cell thick layer. We call it leaky gut when it gets disrupted, right? And there are a lot of foods, drugs, alcohol, any of that stuff can disrupt your mucosal layer, could cause it to be permeable. And that creates that leaky gut that allows a bunch of things, toxins to leak into your system that you don't want. The two big foods for me were seed oils and processed foods, getting those out of my diet. 
listen to episode 384 of the Minimalist Podcast uh, because we did a whole episode about food clutter and what foods to subtract for you, from your life in order to have optimal health, including optimal gut health. The second thing I did was removing fiber from my diet for a period of time. Eating low fiber or no fiber foods was hyper important to me. It's not that I think fiber is inherently bad, but if you have a injured gut, just like uh, TK, if you had an injured arm right now and it had a big ulcer on it and I went over and started rubbing on it really hard, you'd be like, hey man, get off. That really, really hurts. And fiber can do the same thing to a damaged gut. Now, if I went over to your smooth, clean, muscular arm now and started rubbing, you'd be like, ooh, that feels kind of nice, yeah, right? Yeah. But if you have a damaged gut, you want to stop the damage. You want to keep damaging. And high fiber foods were really damaging my gut. I had to remove all fiber from my diet for a period of time. For me, it ended up being a couple years. Wow. I don't necessarily, I'm not recommending that to anyone, but understanding it doesn't happen overnight. The gut healing takes some time and we don't want to re-offend, re-injure the gut. And when it came to repopulating the gut with the good bacteria, that we want. You often hear about probiotics, but as Dr. Bush talks about on this podcast episode, a probiotic can only go so far. I prefer to have fermented foods. There's a great book called The Art of Fermentation. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Every day I'm eating really high quality fermented carrots and beets and cabbage and kimchi. I'm also drinking water kefir or coconut water kefir. That was really important for me and my gut health repopulated my gut because I took antibiotics for 13 years. Don't recommend that, but it decimated my gut. It made my gut feel awful and it got rid of all the good guys in my gut, which made room for a lot of the bad guys to come in and wreak havoc. And I had terrible bowel movements. My bowel movements are great now. I had awful indigestion, IBS, IBD, ulcers in my small bowel. I had significant problems in the gut. So I had to repopulate the gut with good bacteria. Why were you taking this for over a decade. A doctor said that I had this uh, scalp acne, these nodular cysts on my head. I didn't know at the time it was a soy allergy. And he said, oh, here's a quick fix. And of course, being a standard American, I that's what I really wanted was the quick fix. We didn't talk about diet. We didn't talk about anything that might affect my skin. But your skin is a manifestation of gut dysfunction. So whenever I have a <sighs> gut dysfunction, it will manifest in several ways. One is blemishes on the skin or even autoimmune immune conditions, eczema, psoriasis, things like that. And a pill will help with the symptoms, but it's not going to cure the problem. What will is getting a healthy gut microbiome together. And so what I've done is I reintroduce fermented foods that we make at home. You can buy some fermented foods at the store, but it's much better to make your own fermented foods, high quality. You get all the strains of bacteria that are going to help out. However, I will say this, start small and start slow. You want to be really careful. I remember once I took a just a regular probiotic that a doctor recommended. This was a few years ago and I ended up in the hospital because my gut wasn't ready for that much gut new bacteria being introduced into my gut. And so when I say start small, I mean literally small. I take some coconut raw coconut water kefir that you can either make at home or you can buy a really high quality organic raw one from a store and literally would dip my finger into it and just barely get it into my mouth. 
because I found if I took a big swig of it, it wreaked havoc on my gut. You work your way up. You start small. And the same is true with any fermented foods as well. A lot of bacteria there. And if your gut's not ready for it, uh-oh, that's also going to cause a problem. But if you slowly introduce those things, what you're doing is you're improving your gut health. Now, the average person, if they don't have dysbiosis in their gut, fermented foods are still a great idea because 80% of your immune system is in your gut. What you're doing is you're fortifying your gut and thus fortifying your immune system. Our immune system is our health. A few other things I've done really quick. Colostrum uh, has helped in the past. It has a lot of essential nutrients. It's the first milking of a cow or a ruminant animal. And that is helpful because those nutrients are what really helps a baby become healthy. It gives them what they need. And so, uh, again, you may be sensitive to something like dairy, and so be really careful with something like that. There's also, there are supplement companies like Heart and Soil, no affiliation to me, but uh, that sell colostrum so that you can you can take a, just a quick capsule of colostrum, but always start small. If you have a sensitivity, that's probably something I would avoid altogether. Stick with the fermented foods. And then also understanding what is going wrong with your gut. I've done a thousand, well, probably literally dozens of different tests for my gut, testing my microbiome through my poop. The only one that I found to be especially helpful was from a company called ParaWellness. ParaWellnessResearch.com. We'll put, put a link to that in the show notes. You basically get your poop tested and they tell you what's going on there. What parasites, what bacterias are invasive? Do you have an overgrowth of growth of yeast? That was a big problem for me because when we got rid of all that bacteria in my gut through the antibiotics, we made room for all the yeast to just overgrow. And so I had something called CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. I had an abundance of fungus in my gut and para wellness gives you ways to deal with that naturally so you don't necessarily need a prescription to deal with any of these gut parasites, yeast, or bacteria. A few other things that have nothing to do directly with the gut, but help my gut health and my inflammation significantly. Grounding. Uh, you can go back and listen to our episode with Clint Ober about grounding. Phenomenal episode. I ground every day. Now, grounding is absolutely free. Just get your bare feet on the ground. I also use some grounding products from earthing.com. Also not a sponsor. I'm sitting on a grounding mat right now. TK is standing on a grounding mat as well. I sleep on a grounding mat at night. Staying grounded really helps me. They also have a great documentary. It's about 15 minutes long. You can learn the science behind grounding and why it is so important for your life to reduce inflammation because a lot of the gut dis disease that we have is gut inflammation, systemic inflammation, and grounding helps ease and eliminate mm. the inflammation throughout our entire body. A few other things I've done that help my immune system, cold exposure and hot exposure. So cold through ice baths or cold showers really helps. I used to just throw a bunch of ice into a bathtub. I'm lucky enough to have an ice bath in my backyard. Now I've been doing this for years at this point, but now I do it every single day because I have access to it. If you don't have access to a, a cold plunge, you can simply do a cold shower for two minutes a day. That cold exposure, it increases or it helps out your immune system. Mm. And so if you're Helping your immune system, you're also helping your gut because 80% of your immune system is in your gut. Heat exposure as well. I sauna two or three times a week. You could also do a hot tub or something like that but or a hot shower, but finding a local sauna, your local YMCA or a local athletic club or finding a friend that has a sauna, doing that two or three times a week. TK. By, by the way, quick question related to the cold shower. Let's say I get in and for, for three, two minutes, 
I do the cold thing and I'm like, ah, but then at the end of that two minutes, I'm like, all right, I'm going back to comfort land. No, nope. Have I deprived myself of the benefit? Yeah. All the benefits, you always want to end with cold. And that's really important. So like this morning I got into the ice bath. I spent three minutes in the ice bath and I shiver myself to warmth. That's uh-huh. where most of the benefits come. And I do it daily, at least two minutes. Here's the trick though. I think an ice bath is actually easier than an ice shower, a cold shower. Even though it's much colder, the full submersion is so much better than having that water just spraying at me chaotically. Although, well, the best thing is whatever you're going to do. So cold exposure helps your immune system. Heat exposure helps your immune system. Now, keep in mind, none of this is medical advice. So please consult your doctor, your dentist, your shaman, your Pilates instructor, and your local rodeo clown before taking your life into your own hands. I I need to hear the disclaimer in Bama's voice, please. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one more thing. It's my birthday this week, y'all. And I only ask this once a year. Every podcast, we're not hopping on here and say, hey, please uh, rate and review our podcast because I... I don't want to clutter your podcast with public service announcements, but it's my birthday. Will you be willing to get me a birthday gift that I will actually enjoy? I don't need more cufflinks. I don't need a tie. I don't need a birthday cake. All I need is a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you hop on there and just say, hey, I really enjoy this podcast, give us five stars, give us a review. That would be really helpful. I ask for this one time a year on my birthday so we don't clutter every podcast episode that you'd like to. Would you be willing to get me a birthday gift right now? It's my 42nd birthday. And the best gift you can get me is leave us a review, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You know, we have over 16,000 reviews on Apple and we read every one of them. Spotify just started doing reviews recently. So if you listen on Spotify, please give us a review. That helps us reach more ears with our message of less. And if you watch this on YouTube, you can subscribe to this channel. You know, almost 70% of the people who watch our videos on YouTube do not subscribe to our channel. Now is a great chance to do it. You're not gonna see me hop into every video and say, please like and subscribe. This is the one time a year. If you wanna subscribe, we'd really appreciate it. We appreciate y'all. That's right. And the the fact that we don't accept ads on our YouTube videos actually hurts us because we are not a priority because we're not profitable to YouTube in the way that other people who run ads are. And so what that means, it's harder for us to be seen. That's one of the prices that we pay for the stance that we take. And so each time you leave a comment or you subscribe and you hit like, you increase our visibility on YouTube so that if you support what we do and you want more people to hear these ideas, you give them a chance to see it in their timeline newsfeed or whatever it is they call it in the recommended videos. And everything I talked about today with respect to healing your gut, we'll put links to those in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. All right, let's get back to the show. Our next question today is from Varan. My name is Varan. I'm a Patreon subscriber. My father, who is 82 this year, and myself, which is 58, and my sister, which is 54, have all been raised up on the same exact farm. My dad, all of his life, um, except for a few years of his childhood, has always been here. I myself was here up until my adulthood. So was my sister. And we moved away. And I have just moved back in the last year. My sister still comes home frequently to visit. And we all have allergies now. I mean, I mean, we went in the yard the other day, and we all had to have allergy medicine before we went out. We our mask and 
goggles and we're still sneezing our heads off on the same land in the same spot that we were raised in. We didn't have these issues as a child. When we were children, we had a sneeze or rain nose every so often. My dad used to sneeze in you know, in the fall of the year with the hay, but that was it. Nothing like we are now. And now it's like she's on allergy shots. I've had two rounds of allergy shots and nasal th- surgery. So I just said, stop, no mas, and just quit, you know, and um, just now do neti pot and constantly with uh, medication, you know, allergy medications. So what is it that has caused all this change, even on the same land, the same spot over these years? Dr. Bush, what's fascinating about a question like this is it dovetails perfectly from the previous question because you tend to become whatever you immerse yourself in. And I know several farmers. My wife grew up on a farm and her family, they don't really suffer from any allergies, right? But when you remove yourself and put yourself in a sterile environment for years or decades, what often happens is we start to become allergic to the natural environment. What's the cause of that? It's, it's the same process of this loss of biodiversity. And so as you lose biodiversity, as you start to get oversimplified in your exposure to nature, you lose the, the healthy relationship, the balance with your immune system. We used to think that the immune system was a, a weaponry system that killed anything that was foreign. And so we were taught that. I was taught that. Kids in medical school right now are still taught that. Like the immune system oh. is a war on the world around you mm. and a sterile human body is a healthy human body. Mm. And so we had that mindset and, and then we saw the emergence in the 1980s and 90s of allergies and asthma and eczema, all these skin conditions coming out in our children. And through that, pretty early on, with, even within the first decade, there was this, a, a realization that this was not happening in the developing world. You go to Africa, you go to South America, nobody's got eczema, nobody has asthma, nobody has allergies. And so there was a, a theory of, of, of dirtiness, like, you know, was the, the crisis of, of sterility was starting to be recognized. And so exposure to the soil, exposure to dirt, exposure to the outdoors with kids running around, still playing soccer, you know, mostly naked so that their skin is in touch with it instead of being dressed in plastic, you know, clothing and all that and plastic boots. And uh, an American kid in soccer right now is just a sponge for microplastics. Mm. <sighs> they're not getting the grass. They're not getting it. They're, they're literally rolling around in plastic. Yeah. And so the, the Nike kind of trend of here's your plastic outfit. This is going to make you look cool has been adopted universally. And so now you can, can go to the third world and, and see kids wearing those plastic clothing and everything else now as it has kind of eked out there. And now you're seeing the emergence of Western disease in these populations as well. And so it was, our, again, our separation from nature that began the journey. But this, this woman sitting on the farm here with her family is experiencing an ecosystem that's gone through that, that process, not just themselves. And so uh, in the Midwest, for example, in our big farming territories, the kids aren't allowed to go outside during the growing season because the planes are flying and the spraying is happening and everything else. And they will go into an asthma attack the second they go outside. Mm. So kids from, you know, May through to October are largely kept inside, which is the opposite of being a farm kid when I grew up. Yeah. You know, I grew up in of Colorado and all my friends were Kansas, Nebraska. And that was, we played, played the Nebraska football team every year. And those kids were so robust. They, they grew up throwing hay. They grew up, you know, throwing their selves into nature. 
And now you look at what's happening to the health of that Midwest and it's just, it's our highest cancer rates, it's our highest major depression rates, suicide rates, it's our highest attention deficit disorder. You know, you name it, it's the highest rates of imbalance with the microecosystem. So this is where you see Lyme disease exploding down there and everything else. So we just are out of relationship with nature and the result is an inflammatory response because as your gut falls apart through herbicides, pesticides, and then you start to develop inflammation. So now you're in pain. So now you're taking ibuprofen and then you get constipated. Now you're taking Miralax. Like we go into this vicious cycle and suddenly there's, there's no barrier between the outside world and you. And that leads to this leak phenomenon. So leaky guts become mm -hmm. a common term that's thrown around today. What that's describing is high gut permeability where the immune system, 80% of which lives right behind your gut lining, starting at your sinuses and going all the way to the rectum. That immune system is there to stay in relationship, a healthy balance with nature. And when they, you lose the tight junctions and the Velcro falls apart, now every breath you take, every drink you take, every food you take is overwhelming that system. Yeah. And in the overwhelm, you have no no choice but to be in a fight or flight kind of battle against the world. And for that, you start to lose your own self-identity at the cellular level. And so the loss of self-identity turns into chronic inflammation, autoimmune disease, all these things. Uh, allergies are really this. You take a breath and suddenly your immune system is going wacko and you're creating not only congestion, but you're creating inflammatory signals to your brain. You're getting brain fog and headache and starting to feel like junk. Yeah. And so this is happening at the ecosystem level. And you step out into farming country today and you're breathing the antibiotics, you're breathing this, and you've had a loss of the, the balance of the ecosystem. The number of pollens that that uh, this listener had, had uh, breathed when she was a kid on the farm mm -hmm. were tens of thousands of species. Right. Now she might be down to 10 species of dominant pollens that are, she's breathing because oh, wow. we've wiped out all of the ecosystem with broad spectrum herbicides, which kill all green things that aren't genetically modified to tolerate Roundup. And so we, we kill everything. And then what we get is Roundup resistant weeds. And so a few species develop the ability, they, they steal that Roundup ready gene from the corn or the so soybean through the genetic slipperiness that happens in nature. And they say, oh, okay, I get it. You got that gene. I'm taking that gene. And now you've got a Roundup resistant weed. And so now you've got ragweed or maybe a few others that are the dominant species of pollen she's breathing. And so now, just like a, a probiotic where you're down to five, 10 species, when you're down to five or 10 species of pollen, your immune system is also overwhelmed by that information. Mm. And so it's this loss of biodiversity, loss of connection to nature that it leads to this and a perfect story. I mean, that story right there should be front frontline news. I used to be able to breathe the air of earth. Now I cannot. Yeah. Wow. And, and so we turn to these over-the-counter, sometimes there's this weird middle ground like Zyrtec D yeah. where it's, you can buy it without a doctor's prescription, but you, they, I guess because it has Sudafed or whatever and you have to go to a pharmacy and then they, you look at your ID, make mm -hmm. sure you're not manufacturing meth. Mm -hmm. So tell me about some of these things that help with our allergies. They, they help with our response and we stop sneezing, but I suspect it's not all ponies and rainbows. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you dampen the immune response, you, you're messing with the most eloquent system of nature. Because again, the immune system is not a battleground, it's a relationship. Mm. And so uh, by taking that antihistamine alongside of your you know, antibiotic or whatever else you're taking, the antihistamine is now taking you out of the game of injury and response. 
And so now you're just allowing injury to happen without any response. Mm. And you feel better because you're not taking the energy and you're not getting the, the inflammatory reaction to it, mm-hmm. but you're not repairing. Right. And so the accumulation of chronic antihistamine use is basically slowing down your, your capacity for health. And nowhere is it more obvious than in the gut. Uh, when we really block histamine hard, which is like the proton pump inhibitors that we use for antacids in the stomach, right. antacids are a holy disaster for, for the gut. Mm. Uh, and again, you think, oh, this is what I do for gut health is I take my probiotic and I take my antacid and I feel better. After a year of proton pump inhibitor, something like Nexium or these drugs that are given for the antacids, these drugs block the histamine receptor on the gut lining. And what happens is your big pink rugated stomach lining that looks like a coral reef turns into this pearlescent white smooth surface that can has lost its entire intricate ecosystem. It literally changes its morphology within a year. And so you do a scope on somebody who's been on a proton pump inhibitor and you just see this glossy white surface without any of the ability for all of the complex interaction with digestive enzymes and acids and everything else that would prepare that food to, to be successfully digested and absorbed into your body. So now you have a stomach that can't prepare the food effectively for your small intestine. You're dumping that into the small intestine. And now the small intestine is totally overwhelmed because as food is basically unprepared, it hasn't been enzymatically prepared, hasn't been acidically uh, broken down. And now you have bloating after a meal and you have chronic you know, bowel disorders, chronic constipation or diarrhea, one of the two. And so now you have irritable bowel syndrome and all these other conditions that have been invented you know, by terminology right. uh, over this process. And so it's a really fascinating thing that anytime you block nature, you disrupt a balance. And and so this is where we're starting to humbly get to, I think, as a scientific community. It's like, wait, we got to simply stop. We Mm -hmm. simply have to stop trying to micromanage nature. And we need a nature to express itself in human biology again. Mm -hmm. And for that, we could return to a place before the cancer epidemic, before the autoimmune epidemic, before the asthma epidemic, before the autism epidemic, before the Alzheimer's epidemic. We know we have biologic resilience historically. We simply lost it. Yeah. And so getting back in touch with, with resilience is going to look a lot like e- ecosystem recovery of the planet by simply divorcing ourselves from a narrative that chemicals were going to save the planet, chemicals were going to help humans. The chemical industry has single-handedly created climate change, global collapse of ecosystems, the sixth great extinction, all the rest. And so... Uh, we've had we've spent so much time yelling at oil and gas companies mm-hmm. that we didn't realize the damage wasn't been done. You know, the catastrophic damage really wasn't the oil and gas company. It was the small chemicals that were being made from that oil, and that's where all of our pharmaceuticals end up coming out of derivatives of of carbon. You know, sources from from these fossil oils and all the rest. Mm-hmm. And so we've done the damage at the small molecule level, not at the macro ecosystem level. You know, an oil spill is devastating, but nature has all kinds of mechanisms to do that. But you start farming with small chemicals that destroy that that microbial base. Now you can't clean up the oil spill because the the bacteria, fungi, and everything else that would have addressed that issue are gone. Mm. And for that, we see the dead zone at the end of the Mississippi, which is now larger than the state of Rhode Island. It's a total dead zone at the end of the Mississippi River from all that herbicide runoff right out into the ocean. And it, that has spawned these massive kelp. Uh, um, and algae blooms that happen in the Gulf of Mexico that have gotten larger and larger over the last 15 years and now reach the Ivory Coast of of Africa every summer. And so we are destroying fisheries from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to Africa with the runoff from the Mississippi River. Wow. 
the chemicals are ruining our chemistry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the chemicals offer us a quick fix, right? They mm-hmm. offer us in the moment relief. Yeah. It's the, it's the key to pretty much everything we'll talk about through all human history, really, is yeah. it was that drive for convenience, that drive for the quick fix mm-hmm. that it got us off the rails. Nature does iterative processes, not sledgehammers. She loves that process of, oh, okay, this is a little off. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Let's adjust here. Oh, this is off. Let's take advantage of that opportunity. Let's do a new species. Let's do a new genetic swap. Let's do this new thing. So nature has been emergent over a 4 billion year period on the planet. And it goes through these leaps of, of evolution. And uh, those are usually driven by stress. And so the big extinction events have led to the biggest explosions of beauty on the planet. And uh, the, the most recent one, you know, 60 million years ago, uh, 55 million years ago, dinosaurs disappear reptiles rule the earth Mm. and we end up with birds, mammals, ultimately humans because of the genetic expression of the planet coming out of that stress event. Wow. And so nature only does more beauty, more complexity all of the time. Mm. We went from a few species of of slime molds to humans over a 4 billion year period. You know, so it's like, that's that's what nature wants to do. Every step is more biodiversity for the purpose of adaptation. Mm. More adaptation allows for more, more biodiversity. More biodiversity leads to more adaptation. And so it's this, this is the law of, of, of the world. This is the law of nature itself. And as we go through this podcast, I'm hoping we can start to think about that, not from the microsystem, but the macro human systems. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for governments? What does this mean with our relationship with the cosmos? Mm. Because ultimately, what we learn in the microbiome is our path forward. It is literally the template for who we become as humans. Mm. Because right now, we are in the antibiotic, probiotic mindset of we need to diminish and control nature. And for that, we have lost our nature. And human nature has become destructive and extractive at every single level for our fear of everything. And last time we talked a lot about the fear of death. Mm. And I think that does underlie everything. Yeah, yeah. When you have pain, you're afraid you're going towards death. So you recoil from the pain, you treat the pain, you feel better. And you're like, oh, I must not be dying now. When in fact, you've simply dug dug your grave a bit deeper. Yeah. Hey, can what, you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Man. No, I'm so good. I was just going to say, um, I, what I love about what you're saying and what I'm getting from this is that we view ourselves as separate from nature. And I mean, obviously, you know, we're in a body, we walk around, but when it comes to the whole system, it's... uh it's it's something that we have to have that line of thinking we have to avoid like it has to be more of a you know being part of it rather than trying to separate ourselves and control the things that we're separating ourselves from yeah what were you going to say tk i will maybe we maybe we come back to this but i i definitely want to hear the doctor talk a little bit more about pain because at the heart of this convenience is a desire for healing without pain and the way you talk about pain, you talk about it as if pain is a part of the healing process itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love to hear you philosophize about that a little bit in, in respect to not just gut health, but life itself. How can we embrace pain and 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 receive it as as something that's good for us? In some ways, I love the Marines' take on this more than anything I learned in medicine. The Marines say pain is just weakness leaving the body. Mm-hmm. And I'm intrigued by that concept. And I think it really plays out really well in the biology is that pain is weakness leaving the body, which means that pain is 
a symptom of a vulnerability within the body. And the body's immediate response to that injury or that source of pain is to make it stronger than it ever was before. And I think the Marines recognize that of, okay, here's the battleground. But if we stand that battleground and we stay in it, we end up stronger defenses. We, we win the ground. We win, win the day, whatever it is in battle. Mm. The body has this extraordinary capacity to, to utilize the injury as its path forward. And so bone is a great example of this. When we wrap up this podcast and we run down those three flights of stairs, we will cause millions of microfractures in our bones. Just the, just the jostling move of just jogging down the stairs. Millions of microfractures. And these cells sweep in called osteoclasts and they clean up all the broken bone and then they put out a chemical signal to the osteoblast to come in and lay down new bone. So by the time I drive across LA, I've actually got a stronger skeletal system than I did before I ran down the stairs because there was an injury. And so pain is a symptom of that destruction before reconstruction process. Mm. And what we tend to do is dull down that signal. And if you take an anti-inflammatory at that moment, the osteoclast loses its ability to signal effectively to its osteoblast to come lay down the new bone and everything else. So you, you end up diminishing that. And a lot of other things do this that are common. Caffeine slows down that responsive repair, things like that. And so um, we find that the, the body is loving the process of injury and repair. Mm. And pain is a symptom of that journey. Mm. And another antidote that I think, or anecdote that I would love to throw in there is that within the wound is the antidote. Mm. Within the wound is the solution. Mm. And that's a really important experiential shift. Um, my grandfather had really horrible gout. And about two weeks ago, I got hit with gout in my big toe and I was on a retreat in, Bio, in Bali doing this immersive retreat for a small group of people. And we were working through the concept of epigenetics that we inherit from our ancestors and everything else. And this thing happened right in the middle of this thing. And immediately my grandfather was in my presence. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is my grandfather speaking through my biology, his genomics literally showing me something. Mm. What is he showing me? Like, And so instead of freaking out that my toe hurt, I was able to just start to focus in like, okay, this is my literal epigenetic memory of some sort of trauma that set my grandfather up with an imbalance of hydration, kidney management of salts, all this. And so in that space, I had this unbelievable opportunity to connect with my grandfather and to experience him on a level I've never experienced before. There was a practitioner there in Bali that helped with ancestral reconnection stuff. And I was, I was like, oh, that's, that sounds really interesting. I certainly understand the genetic side of that. What I wasn't expecting was to have a conversation with my grandfather, you know? Mm. And so to have a conversation with my grandfather, I don't know if it's his memory, his future self, his past self. I don't know what's talking to me through there. But the words that came through this woman were so quintessential. My grandfather, he was such a salty, hilarious, wry character to see this woman from Uzbekistan whose second language is English using my grandfather's language was just comical. Like it was just <laughs> hilarious to see, see this coming through. As I sat with that, I learned some really deep things about what I need to do to repair relationship with my past belief systems about being a father, about being a grandson, about being a, a son. And, and so I went on this spiritual journey and my toe repaired at a rate that just doesn't make sense. Like 
gout takes weeks to really recover from, but it was minutes to days where that thing's shifting, shifting every day. It was like radically different foot. And so I was experiencing mm. within the wound a message of biologic vulnerability that had been set in motion through generations of my family. And when you start to understand genetics, you realize we literally are the tr- expression of 40 generations at least before us. Mm. And you start to calculate the amount of emotional trauma, physical trauma that's now being expressed in your body. The moment you were conceived, you began to express trauma. And so our biology is an amalgamation of a traumatic human journey. And we haven't trained each other how to erase the trauma within our own lives. And so we pass it on to our children. We've been taught to bury that pain. Mm. Don't, Don't feel that. Don't do that. So whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or psychosocial pain, whatever it is, we bury these things in an effort to avoid the pain. Mm. Whereas if we had gone into my grandfather's pain when he was having it, what would we have set in motion for his son and his grandson and his Mm. future grandchildren to really inherit? Would we all have gout over and over again? Or would we actually rebalance our relationship to the water structure within our bodies by eliminating these patterns of trauma that we keep handing down? In the wound is an antidote. And so, and I've heard this from nearly every one of my patients over time, get diagnosed with cancer. It's the biggest fear paradigm they've ever faced. They're in fight or flight. They're afraid of death. They're afraid of leaving their kids behind. A year and a half later, when they have gone on a journey of healing and they have rediscovered themselves and therefore healed from their cancer, they always tell me that cancer was the best gift that has ever happened in my life because I was living a life that was disconnected from self. Mm -hmm. And now I'm living a, a life connected to self. And it suddenly doesn't matter if they live for three months or 30 more years because they are them. And that was the human journey. That was really what they were going for in life. That was the final satiation they were looking for of like, oh, this is the skin crawling thing that I've been fighting for my whole life Mm -hmm. is to just feel me Mm -hmm. and to feel like I am an expression of self rather than the amalgamation of trauma of 40 generations before me. Mm -hmm. And so these moments of trauma, these moments of pain, these moments of, you know, life-threatening experiences are your greatest gift because they're going to give you the opportunity to say, who am I? And what are my priorities? And the minimalist podcast is, is has the theme that runs through all of them is they shrink their their priority list massively, mm. yes. and they simplify and they simplify and they simplify and then they heal. Mm. It is for the chaos of your externalized identity that you cannot heal. You have taken on so many identities outside yourself that you cannot have time to know yourself. Mm. And so you think of yourself as an amalgamation of disease diagnoses, you an amalgamation of your, your biohacking equipment that you use at home, you're an amalgamation of I'm a son, I'm a, a, a parent, I'm a member of the PTA, I'm a boss, I'm a doctor, I'm a this or that, I'm an employee, I'm a CEO. You've externalized a million different facets of your identity and you have absolutely no idea what it sounds like to be you. Mm. I want to touch on two things real quick before we move on to a few social media questions. Ryan, you brought up something. He mentioned trauma a moment ago. Yeah. I know you and Zach had a conversation about trauma when you were having lunch last week. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, definitely. I was uh, just talking about how, so Mariah and I had, had lunch with uh, Dr. Bush, and I was talking about how every human being on this planet is experiencing some sort of, or have, has experienced some sort of trauma. And we are all... Um, in the process of healing our trauma. And some people are further along than others. Um, Some people haven't started yet. But 
Dr. Bush pointed out to me, he's like, well, we are trauma. We are living trauma. Mm. And, you know, going back to trying to separate things from ourselves, I think that that perspective for me, like really helped me, it just helped me look at trauma a little bit differently and helped me in a way, um, like appreciate it, I guess, like just because realizing like, oh, like that's who makes me up. And I am this, you know, representation of the trauma that I've experienced in my life. Um, do you want to expound on that at all about the kind of how we are living trauma? Yeah. And, and it's not actually bad news as grim as that sounds. It's actually kind of when you flip it on its head and you realize that the antidote is in the wound. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm, I'm 40 generations of wounds that are unhealed for the effort to bury the truth, bury the feeling, bury the experience. If I now take the opportunity to feel those experiences and just give them their full due. And for me and my grandfather, this was a conversation around extreme loneliness. My grandfather went through a a huge change in his midlife and he expressed his self-identity when he was 48 and the whole family buried that information. Mm -hmm. And he died, you know, nearly 40 years later, 35 years later, something still in the lie, still the family denying everything, you know, uh, such that I didn't even know the, the real story of my grandfather's life. And so to meet him and go into that with him that morning in, in Bali, I just cried and cried and I felt it. I felt the loneliness. I felt the, the misidentity. I felt the, the amazement. It was, I felt a sense of awe that my, my own children would reject me to that level and hide me from their grandchildren, wow. et cetera. And so I felt this just deep sorrow, this deep wound and I didn't have any way to escape it at this point. I was just in it and I was just bawling and I was processing it and I was getting through it. And then I found this like really sweet moment of peace where I just got to say, I'm sorry mm. for all of it. I'm sorry for my parents and the, the layers are behind them and the layers behind them. And, and they were just in fear. That's why this lie was perpetuated. It wasn't that they didn't like you. It was, and I'm just so sorry that we were all so afraid of the world that we would perpetuate untruth around your life. And so that's a very personal drama to experience and to share, I guess. But the, the reality is, if you will make yourself available to the wound beneath your symptoms, hmm. you're going to experience the trauma and the emotions related to that that are sitting there in your epigenetics unresolved. And as you start to resolve it by feeling it, you become a new machine. You become a new technology. Mm -hmm. And that new technology is one that is present rather than stapled down in the past. Yes. And the present is an extremely malleable place. It can take in new information, become something new every millionth of a second. One million times a second, you can create a new body unless you are tied to all of this emotional traumatic, physical traumatic memory that's been unresolved. And now you're literally like a marionette puppet held in space, unable to move forward. And you just keep repeating the pattern and you pass on the epigenetics to your children, to your great-grandchildren on down the line. And so it is an invitation for us at this moment to start to really feel the pain. Hmm. Let it just be there. Hmm. Don't run from it. Go into it and ask the deeper question of why, how, when, what could we be in instead? And then what you're ultimately going to find is not a deep apology somewhere in there. I am sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then once you are sorry, you can feel 
I am forgiven. And once you feel the I am forgiven, you can move to the next piece, which is thank you. Mm. You move into that gratitude. And the epigenetic shift that starts to happen in that gratitude moment is just, it's like the big eraser on the whiteboard, you know, and suddenly 40 generations of chaos in every color. Gratitude. Mm. Everything goes white. Everything goes clean. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you. And that that becomes the new expression of life is the frequency of love is the reaction to seeing beauty. Because mm. in my grandfather, I see great beauty. Mm. And I'm so humbled by the life he lived because he lived it in isolation and in pain mm. and honored the decision that the family had made to keep his life secret. He literally made that decision. All right, I'm not going to tell my great grandkids. I'm not going to tell them. I'll, I'll live the silence. I will, I will endure the pain. Mm. And for that, there's something beautiful in that. And so I honor his life. I honor him. I honor the life that I live in echo of him. And I'm excited to see that the generations that are coming forth don't carry the same fears that we carried in those generations that perpetuated the lie. And so there is proof around me that my children in their 20s are not experiencing the same fear paradigm that my grandfather was mired in. And so this is true healing. This is true healing when we, when we escape the fear and, and start to live a self-expression. Yeah. It makes me think about how um, when I hurt my shoulder, uh, this was like last summer, um, I was uh, with the physical therapist and he was like having me do some things. And he was like, how does that feel? And I'm like, oh, it hurts a little bit. He's like, uh, how, how bad does it hurt? I'm like, it's about a three or four out of 10. He's like, good. He's like, that's where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what what are you talking about? He was like that inflammation, it's signal for your body to do the healing. And he was like, the, the, the pain that you feel is actually a good thing because it's bringing in what your body needs. And this is helping me see um, what you're talking about, how emotionally uh, it's important to feel these negative emotions because it's allowing yourself to bring in the healing that you need emotionally where yeah, I mean, we want to we want to prescribe an antidepressant or a, a benzo or you know painkiller, whatever it is. Like we we just want to cover up that that emotional pain. But what I'm hearing you say is like the emotional pain is just as important to experience as uh, some of the physical pain that we have with our wounds. This is an interesting type of clinging in mm. a way. We're covering it up so we can keep clinging to it. Mm. And ultimately, Doctor Bush, what you're talking about is a type of letting go. And the gratitude that you're talking about isn't a forced faux gratitude. I'm just going to look in the mirror and smile and now I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be helpful as an exercise, I'm sure. But what you're talking about is get gratitude as a byproduct of letting go. Mm. Byproduct of I'm sorry. Mm. Mm. I mean, all of you listening right now, I mean, just close your eyes right now. And How many things have you put in front of yourself, your soul? How many things have you prioritized over yourself in your lifetime? You have made yourself last in line. You have diminished your own value so deeply as I have. And so what would it feel like to begin there? I am so sorry my soul, for having put you absolutely last. So sorry that I've been afraid to be you. I'm so sorry I didn't realize it was enough. 
to be a perfect expression of you. Mm. Mm. And so the journey back into life is feeling the, the source, feeling the, the symptom, and then looking for the I am sorry moment. Yeah. There's something that needs to be apologized to in there. And as soon as the I am sorry happens, you go with a wash with that experience of I am sorry for a moment. I think it's beyond an emotion. It's a, a physical experience of I am sorry. And then almost immediately you're going to feel this. It is okay. Mm. It is just okay. It's perfect. Everything's perfect. Yeah. Okay. This was the journey. And welcome home. Yeah. And before you get to that, <laughs> I am sorry, you've got to first get to I am. <laughs> and this is what I'm hearing you say. You've got to be present with the pain. You're hurting, but you just got to be here. And that's when everything becomes clear. Mm. Yeah. The precious thing that we have is the opportunity to feel. And this goes back thousands of years. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher. Uh, we now use the word term Epicurean to you know, study the pleasure of food, basically. But Epicurus, in studying neurodynamics at the time, which is amazing that they were doing this 2,000 years ago, um, but he figured out that the majority of the brain was dedicated to the senses. And so his conclusion was the highest calling for humans must be to feel pleasure because the whole brain is wired for it. Mm. And so he realized we should be feeling pleasure all of the time. And that message kind of got co-opted by, you know, the hedonism and some of these other kind of psycho-philosophical religious constructs that came out of it. But he was striking on something that he wasn't talking about sex even. He was mostly talking about food because he realized this is something that the body engages multiple times a day at every single age of life mm. and is the place that we find the most nurture. Mm. It is the place that you find that signal of somebody cares for you and you're being provided for by a nature through perhaps your mother or your grandmother that's preparing that food or a whole tribe that's at yeah. the fireplace, sharing that meal together in the evening. And so this was the signal that we are okay, that we are safe, that we are there. And it gives us a deep pleasure far beyond the tingling sensation of sexuality or sensuality. This is the deepest version of sensuality, which is nurture. Mm. And that's where Epicurus was probably right, is this is actually the human experience at its best. Mm. I want to tune into one more question here that I think ties into that perfectly. This one is from Jean on Facebook. I already eat mostly organic whole foods, but are there any foods I should avoid or even prioritize to help keep my hormones balanced? So we did an episode recently with Dr. Paul Saladino about food clutter, and he talked about some things to remove from the diet that are foods we've introduced that have basically gotten us away from nature. So seed oils is a big one processed carbohydrates, anything that's essentially in a package has been sitting on a shelf for a long period of time. It's a food product, but it's not really the food that you're talking about. Artificial sweeteners, anything with pesticides, glyphosates, et cetera. Um, alcohol as well. Mm -hmm. uh, these things that are not necessarily in our nature. I, I don't know that that's not really a comprehensive list, but I think it's probably a good place to start. It's often about subtraction more than it is about addition. We were always looking, what foods can I, what can I put into my body to make it better? But quite often, subtraction is greater than addition. 
And I, I think you just answered that classic question in the nutrition world is, you know, what should we eat? Should we be vegan? Should we be paleo? Should we be keto? Uh, because I know people that went keto and they only eat meat and they feel better. And then I know people who went vegan and they feel better. Well, the answer is both those communities stopped eating the packaged food. <laughs> so mm. it's not about what you're eating. It's about what you've eliminated. And so this is why you can hear such vehement bickering and fighting between those camps is because they actually felt better. Mm. <laughs> and so they are convinced by their deductive reasoning that, well, it must be the meat that's making me feel better. It must be the veggies that are making me feel. No, it's the lack of canola oil in your right, bloodstream. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's literally the elimination of these these highly processed things that are making you feel better. And so the reality is whole food is the only diet that counts. And so if you're going after whole food, you're going to win the game. And biodiversity, again, wins the game in that story. And so I do get concerned when people are saying, you know, I eat chicken for six months and I feel much better. I'm like, yeah, that is one amino acid. <laughs> you are loading your body with a single amino acid for months. And all you have to do is go hang out with a carnivore to realize that's a ridiculous way to eat. Mm -hmm. Because if you go hang out with a lion and you watch them take down the wildebeest, they never go and eat the muscle. They're not eating the steak initially. They instead rip open the belly and they eat 40 pounds of organic composted greens oh, wow. out of the gut of that thing before they ever touch the meat. Yeah. Because they know they're going to be constipated to beat the band if they just go after the muscle and they go eat a bunch of steak they're not going to be able to move their bowels. And so the reason why Costco is now selling near gallon sizes of Miralax is because we have this protein addiction and this protein you know, treatment for diet right now that's just all meat. Yeah. And when you just put meat in the gut, it takes about 14 hours from it moved from your stomach to your colon. 14 hours mm. versus you know that high fiber diet that the lion is eating on the front end of it or the vegan eating their vegan meal with the same calories, it passes in 90 minutes. Mm. So it's either an hour and a half or 14 hours you choose your transit time, but you're going to have to keep that thing moving because by the time you're eating lunch tomorrow, you still have two more meals backed up in your gut, you know, that are still trying to process through. And so mm -hmm. it's this journey into this slow bowel thing that then leads to, you know, these pharmaceutical solutions and taking heavy dose magnesium and Miralax and everything else to keep your bowels moving. And so... I've never seen a lion take a bunch of magnesium. I was just going to say, Miralax, Miralax <laughs> now for lions. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's do one more here. Oh, this shoot. one is from YouTube. Uh, Danae has a question for us. I don't like to watch videos about food because each doctor has their mm. own personal opinion about what we should and shouldn't eat. Do these cluttered ideas about food create eating disorders? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sort of the, the status quo here is rotting with disorder. Everything we've been told is healthy, is disordered in some way now because of either it is counterfactual, counterindicated, or it is not taking in consideration the full picture as you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's a good lead in with the last answer there. And then to kind of expound on that, I guess what we're dealing with is, you know, the eating disorder side of this is fear. And so when you put people in fear of their own food, it's a really deep injury it, mm. because it's the one thing we trusted mm. was the food that our mother fed us. Because again, it was the signal of nurture. And so you, when you come to fear nurture in your own body, you, you become a very anxious being. And you cannot trust anymore. Yeah. And so I think this is the disservice that our our dietary bickering has has led to is a deep mistrust in the nurture of this planet. Mm. 
Mm. And we have developed a deep anxiety that we cannot be healthy anymore. We cannot be nurtured anymore. And so we are doomed to a journey of loneliness and disconnect. Mm. And for that, at the cellular level, we have anxiety. And, and that anxiousness is the result. And then it expresses itself in certainly eating disorders, bulimia or anorexia being the classic ones. But really, the really big eating disorders right now are a lack of satiation. Um, we cannot find satiety because we're eating drugs. Mm. And that salt-sugar-fat combination is just a simple drug on your brain. Same trigger as cocaine, everything else on the frontal lobes. And then within 30 minutes, all the cheese that was on that double cheeseburger of yours hits the, the stomach lining. Unless it's been completely destroyed by, by your over-the-counter drugs, it's going to start making opioids. Mm. And so uh, you make a morphine compound in reaction to casein, which is the main protein in cheese. And so... We get this fat, salt, sugar combination on the front end of, of, of that fast food meal, or it doesn't even matter fast food. You go to any restaurant and they're serving you fat, salt, sugar combinations that they think are going to tick this box. Yeah. Hyper palatable. And mm. hyper palatable, meaning you, you typically eat with two hands and you can't stop. You're compelled to keep eating because you're getting this cocaine response on the frontal lobes. And then right about the time that stuff's hitting your small intestine, when you're going to be miserable, your stomach starts making opioids from the cheese. And so you now have a narcotic coursing through your bloodstream, which of course slows down your bowel function. Now you get bloating and you get this, but you're at least not as in much pain. Mm. And so the more cheese you're eating, the more pain you're covering up. Yeah. And that might be emotional pain. It might be physical pain, but you're going after an opioid if you're going after a lot of cheese. And so that's, that's something that we see often driving food behaviors is cocaine, narcotic, twofold that that our our modern food system has created wow just say no to cheese kids (laughs) cheese not even once (laughs) no more opioid pizzas this is your gut on cheese that is wild that is crazy man wow this is the time where we usually enter into our lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. By the way, you can follow The Minimalist on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. We'll put links to Dr. Zach Bush's social media handles as well, but we're going to forego the lightning round today. I do have one piece of uh, news for you. Our first film, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things after 80 million views and seven years on Netflix. If you missed it last week, it just came out on YouTube. So you can find that now, uh, youtube.com slash The Minimalist or over at minimalism.com. You can watch the full documentary for free and 100% advertisement free as you know with our podcast our patreon subscribers keep our podcast and our youtube channel 100 percent advertisement free because advertisements suck yeah let's move on to right here right now i'm gonna hand the floor over to ryan and dr bush usually we use this segment to talk about one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist and one thing that happened is Ryan and uh, his wife, Mariah, and Dr. Bush, they went out to lunch last week, and Ryan calls me afterward, and he said, hey, Dr. Bush wants to come on the podcast, and he has, he has something to talk about. And he told me what it was, and I, if it wasn't Ryan Nicodemus and Dr. Zach Bush, I would have hung up the phone, mm. turned it off, changed my phone number, and moved to a new city. Wow. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> So, Ryan, do you want to set this up and then we'll let uh, you can set the pins up and Dr. Bush can bowl them over. Yeah. No, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I've never had to set up a conversation like this before. But, 
Yeah, when we were having lunch, you um, just kind of delivered something to me that, that really blew my mind. And you know, Dr. Bush, because I respect you so much, man. It's like, I couldn't not take you seriously. <laughs> so um, I guess like, with that being said, with that being said, um, maybe you could tee it up for our audience and why, why, you're, why you're really here today. Yeah. So I, I can't remember, honestly, if we got into in the last podcast, but a lot of my last 15 years has dealt with the microbiome, looking at how bacteria and fungi interact with the human immune system. And then deeper than that, the human neurology. And one of the big, big aha moments this last 15 years is the concept of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the concept of intelligence as human is starting to disappear because we're starting to realize all the data that is inputted into your brain to create patterns of information that would be, then be able to exhibit intelligence are being inputted by bacteria and fungi. Mm. And so this has been a lot of my work is to realize that human consciousness only occurs because we are the most biodiverse ecosystem interacting with a single neurology. To put that in a tighter box, the human colon in its anatomy, its exact anatomical structures has perfected the ability to hold more ecosystem variety than any other colon in the history of the planet. Wow. Meaning we can touch more species of bacteria, fungi, yeast, protozoa than any other species has ever touched with our neurology. And we now know that the nerves that innervate the gut lining, many of them are piercing the gut lining and sticking the snout of these neurons straight into the milieu of the bacteria, fungi, and the rest. And for that, we're starting to realize the fingers on the keyboard of your computer are non-human. Mm. They are literally coming from the ecosystem itself, inputting information into you that would then become intelligence. Mm. And it looks like species and their intelligence are directly linked to how much of nature can speak through you. And so this concept of human intelligence is starting to evaporate into the microbiome and nature itself being the source of intelligence. Mm. And so the conversation we got into last week was kind of the macro version of that is that we've spent a lot of time in science fiction and in conspiracy theory and everything else talking about extraterrestrial intelligence, mm -hmm. which the words mean extra beyond terrestrial, meaning earth intelligence, extraterrestrial intelligence. Is it possible that there's an intelligence out there in the universe? Mm -hmm. And the James Webb telescope has blown our minds, right? Yeah. We thought Hubble had shown us the universe and we thought we had maybe to maybe 20 billion galaxies in the universe. And then James Webb is uncovered with a much higher resolution image of the universe. And we realized we were logarithmically off on that. That's more like 2.5 trillion galaxies in the universe. Wow. And when you start to wrap your head around 2.5 trillion galaxies, each of which has 10 billion suns. Yeah, you can't. It's you can't, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Milky Way has a quarter of a trillion planets, like just the one galaxy, let alone the however many trillions of galaxies there are, multiply that by a quarter of a trillion. Yeah, it's, it's, you can't grasp it. Although it's very interesting, the micro to macro. And so some of the best papers that I think have been written in physics this last decade have shown us that we sit mathematically in the center of the universe, mm. right between the biggest thing in the universe to the smallest thing in the universe. We sit in the mathematical center. It's called the universal scaling law. And so you take the frequency of resonance or the vibration of the universe itself, largest radius that we've ever measured is the universe. Mm. The, the frequency of resonance of that sets this very low hum. And it's cool that the universe has a sound to it. Yeah. Mm. Far, far below our detection capacity with our, our neurology, but it's humming. And at the highest pitch noise ever created in the universe is Planck's constant, which is the vibration of the electromagnetic field in a vacuum. You draw a straight line between those two and you can start to plot everything 
in nature from galaxies to quasars to suns to solar systems to planets to moons to a plant to a feather to an atom to you keep going down smaller and smaller. Ultimately, you find that that perfect line represents everything. The frequency mm. of resonance plotted against its radius or diameter. And dead center is freaking human biology. And so this thing that we call life seems to be the center point of the purpose of all of nature. Mm. And so the physicist Nassim Haramein has called us the event horizon, which is that disk that comes out of every black hole to create a galaxy. The event horizon is that magical plane in which all of the light is being compressed into particle state and expressing itself as an asteroid belt or planets or moons or suns. And so the way in which a black hole forms matter is this expression from waveform into particle state and expresses physical realm. And then the physical realm gets to, at some point, go from physics to biology. Mm. And that's when things get really bright. The difference between a sun and a single living cell is about 10,000 times brighter at the living cell level. Cubic centimeter by cubic centimeter, a cubic centimeter of the sun is 10,000 times dimmer than a cubic centimeter of mitochondria that power you with light energy. You burn 10,000 times brighter than the sun by the amount of light energy that is released by life. So what is life? It's a 10,000 time concentration of the brightest things physics ever created. Hmm. And so life is a density of light expressed at the atomic level. Yeah. And it, interestingly, the, just to finish the yeah, thought, yeah. James Webb shows us 2.5 trillion galaxies, and then you multiply that by another 10 billion suns or something, you're starting to get into the same zone of the number of mitochondria inside your body oh. that release the light energy of those suns. And so we're at 14 quadrillion or so mitochondria. We could be off by a couple zeros still. And you're up in those quadrillions of suns in the, in the universe. And so in these weird ways, we start to realize that nature is fractal. What's true at the micro level is true at the macro level. And these fractals of truth uh, emanate through it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to, well, uh, just kind of, you know, playing off of that. I've always thought, like, ever since I understood how... Um, you know, an atom works and, uh, you know, the, 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 I don't know, the, whatever rotates, the electrons rotates around the center. And I'm looking at that. Um, I don't, I was young when I saw this and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, this looks like a little mini solar system. Mm -hmm. And if you, so if you look at the way atoms work and the way our solar system works, it's, there's a, there's a center that things are spinning around, which is pretty, pretty, um, stinking fascinating. But something you said at lunch uh, last week was about how light can carry information. And it, I, I didn't understand it when you said it. And, uh, but I was, you know, I hold space for it and try to, try to understand it. But it just so happens like this is literally, less, uh, literally yesterday. I was looking up, um, because I go down these rabbit holes on YouTube with uh, math and physics and stuff, uh, the double slit experiment. Mm -hmm. And last month... Uh, what well, I should say in April, um, they just did the the double slit experiment with um, light, or I'm sorry, with yeah, with light, and through that they did it with time rather than like the actual slits. And I could go into what the double slit experiment is, but that's going to take ten or fifteen minutes to to uh, explain. But uh, the point being is, is they they proved that you can in fact. Uh, use light to carry information, which is, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty mind-blowing. So, yeah. yeah. 
And so you start to peer out into the universe and you peer within the human gut and you peer within the human cell with all those mitochondria teeming within your cells. You know, 2,000 mitochondria for every neuron that would be there. So 2,000 little suns burning to, to ignite you into your capacity to have intelligence thought that's coming out of the ecosystem that lives within you and around you. And then you start to look at it, 2.5 trillion other galaxies with billions and billions of other suns with tens of billions of planets. And you start to really have to come to terms with, you know what, we're probably not alone. Yeah. You know? And interestingly, the news that we're breaking right now around the world right now is only news to the West, really. Mm -hmm. Because if you go hang out with any indigenous culture, they say, oh yeah, they're there's been extraterrestrial intelligence all around us forever. And this is where the UFOs come and go. And mm. we go here and you can see them coming at night and they usually disappear into the water or they go into that pyramid. Or they, like, eh, I've been in Africa, I've been in South America, I've been in uh, South Asia. And they all say the same thing of like, oh yeah, we're, we're constantly in communication with these things. Mm. And so the news that there's life outside of the planet is not news to humans. Mm. It's just news to a Western mind that decided that the only safe place to be is at the pinnacle top of everything. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And for that, the colonial mind, whether Western or Eastern or whatever, but that colonial mind that we need to control everything for our own safety because we fear death mm -hmm. is what has driven us away from the comfort with knowing that there's extraterrestrial life all over the place. Yeah. And so this is the news that's now breaking uh, big and, and you know, you listeners can go deep into this now. There's a long form interview with David Grush um, that's uh, released and David Grush is one of the, you know, shining stars within our special forces. He was a physicist by training, went into special ops and uh, worked deeply with the military across different sectors, uh, was deployed in Afghanistan hero among us and uh, did deep work and then was assigned by the Department of Defense a couple years ago to uh, be kind of the head of their their UFO task force uh, and in their UFO UAE, which is the unidentified aerial activities and things like this mm -hmm. that uh, people are terming the UFO activity. Uh, he went into it with uh, an incredible document that he wrote, which was, I'm going to go prove all of this is BS. There's mm. I am a physicist. I know that all of these, you know, stories of UFOs and abductions and everything else aren't true, blah, blah, blah. So he went in with eyes wide open, ready to prove it all wrong. And over the, the subsequent couple of years, you'll hear his own story in David Grush's long form interview that's coming out, um, you know, uh, this week on multiple different forms. But David's stories are about the fact that in the same way that we fear death, we fear uh, intelligence outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so this fear paradigm has driven a cover-up that has been so thorough, but not perfect because we've all heard the stories of UFOs. We've all seen the declassified stuff that came mm -hmm. out of the Trump administration, mm -hmm. declassified a whole bunch of stuff, trying to get this story out a couple of years ago. But David Grush, as you know, head of, head of the Department of Defense UFO Project, gave all this testimony to the Senate Arms Committee and everything else in recent months, and so the stories are starting to break across all, all sectors now. The fact that there is a program called The Program that's been running for 90 years in the U.S. government. And The Program is uh, typically, as, as you'll see, anytime we're trying to hide information, we fracture the information. Yeah. So you want doctors to not really understand cancer or disease in general, you fracture them. So you say, you're the specialist on that protein, you're the specialist on that receptor, you're the specialist here. And pretty soon nobody actually can see the forest from mm. the trees. And yet they all are told they're the smartest, most intelligent, most expert people on cancer. 
that was me 14 years ago, mm. expert in Coop TF1, a protein nobody's ever heard of, but I had a grant. I was studying it. I was developing chemotherapy for Coop TF1, receptor activation, blah, blah, blah. And so the same thing has happened at the governmental levels where information was fractured out of fear. Mm. We were afraid of the big story. Yeah. And we've been in a cold war basically against other governments since the 1940s uh, with the program. And the program has been designed to try to reverse engineer uh, extra human intelligence and their technologies for a warfare advantage. And so mm. we've been trying to get that paradigm shifting technology that we could dominate the Russians or the Chinese or whatever the stories have been over the last 90 years. It's out of this fear of we need to kill them before they can kill us. Mm. And the first, you know, really big recoveries of those craft that had enough technology to start to reverse engineer happened in Italy in 1933. And Mussolini and, and his group there took that content on. And then the Third Reich came in very quickly and confiscated all of that. And so the Third Reich was definitely working with these technologies that helped a lot of things leap forward during World War II. Jet aircraft, all kinds of things started coming out uh, of those German scientists because they had stuff that we hadn't seen before and they started to reverse engineer this stuff. Um, at the same time, you know, accident recovery sites were were achieved in, in the U.S. and Roswell, New Mexico and other places. And um, there's a whole, you know, task force in the military that, that David and others are now describing that their job is to go and as soon as there's a suspicious wreck, they go take it and put it into hiding and then they 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 try to figure out who can can reverse engineer this stuff mm. and unfortunately or fortunately i don't know which <laughs> but again it gets further fraction where the government loses track of that stuff because they assign it to private sector and so now it's you know raytheon or boeing or all these big private contractors for the military that are given technology to say can you figure this out can you reverse oh, wow. engineer this and all of that and so can you weaponize it can you too? weaponize yeah. it which is so fascinating ryan and i grew up in dayton ohio there's a great air force museum there and you see right away like Oh, the Wright brothers are there. They're flying this little glider and mm. the, the the Wright flyer too. And within 10 years, what are we using it for? World how do War we one. kill people? <laughs> yeah, how do we shoot people in World War One? Yeah. And it sounds to me like there's that parallel. So I do want to dive deep into this extraterrestrial uh, mindset. But first, I just wanted to figure out why do you think that we tend to weaponize everything that we create, eventually we find a way to batter other people with it. Antibiotics, probiotics, the rest. <laughs> yes. Yes. Anti-cancer. <laughs> yes. Chemotherapy, radiation. Yeah. yeah. The war on cancer. Yeah. Mm. I mean, honestly, it's, it has, it's the same story over and over and over again. And it goes back to our first podcast. It is the fear of death. Mm. Yeah. That is it. Mm. Yeah. We literally are terrified of death. I'm going to kill what could kill me. Mm, yeah. And I am separate and therefore everything must be trying to kill me. Mm. Yes, this non-dual perspective it's this simple. Uh, is, is uh, we've lost it in a way, right? Everything has become this duality, the otherizing of everyone else. And not only am I separate from you, I'm on a pedestal apart from you. I'm the only non-idiot on the planet. Mm. Yes. We, are, we are trained so deeply into that belief that I am smarter and more deductive than anybody else around me. Mm. And therefore, my story must be right. Damn, that's dangerous. It's so insidious mm. because it seems so safe. It's like, okay, I'm safe in my little bubble. 
and I can see the forest for the trees and nobody else can. And I'm not going to listen to other people that tell me what that story is. I'm not, not going to trust that. And so it's a very insidious process that's led us to this belief that, my God, we humans you know, have to be loved by God more than anybody else. And we are the purpose of God and all mm. that because we don't want to go to hell. You know, so we mm. created this whole other domain of the concept of hell to justify our fear of death. We had to create a story of hell to justify an inherent fear of death within us. Mm. But we're actually just expressing symptoms of a belief that what we see is what's real mm. and everything else must not be real. And so if you only come to trust what you can physically see with your eyes, you are now trusting 0.00001% of the universe and believing that that constitutes the entire universe. Mm. Because for all those 2.5 trillion galaxies out there, it's still 0.0001% vacuum space. Right. You know, or 0.0 physical versus the vacuum space. 99.999% vacuum space. Mm. That is full of all the light information. And so this is where we get into dark matter and all these fudge factors that we use mathematically because we weren't calculating the density of light within the electromagnetic field within that vacuum space. And it turns out it's 13 zeros more dense than all of the physical matter in the universe pressed into a cubic centimeter. One cubic centimeter of emptiness is 13 zeros denser than all physical structure of the entire universe, all 2.5 trillion galaxies pushed into that same cubic centimeter it's 13 zeros longer for uh, an empty space state. And so we have so miscalculated the universe. And so this whole 94% of the universe must be dark matter and all this stuff. No, it's just light energy being expressed in the form of electromagnetic field within the vacuum. Hmm. That's the density of the universe. And that density then dictates the behavior of that 0.001%. And so we have come to believe a universe through this little pixel of reality and then we tell ourselves all kinds of stories to justify the experience of believing that's all that there is. Mm. And so as we start to come to terms with the fact that there are intelligent systems within the universe that way out, out map our capacity and have been here for millions of years longer than we have likely, we have to start to back up and just say, what is real? Honestly, what is real? Mm. And the answer is light. Mm. There's only one thing that's real, and that's expression of waveform or frequency of vibration in the universe. And from that comes everything else. And so are we going to pretend like everything is outside of ourselves is darkness, or are we going to come to terms with it is all light energy mm. in the form of the electromagnetic field that is expressing life itself, expressing physical matter. It expresses the sun, the moon, the stars, the asteroids, everything else, and ultimately humanity. And so we have to come to terms with the fact that we bought into a fear paradigm that kept us locked in this tiny little box of beliefs, mm. tiny little box, and we were trained to fear everything outside of that box. Mm. And so as we come to terms with the fact of all this information now coming out and government officials not only saying that we've recovered the spacecraft, we've also recovered the alien, the alien intelligence. And I really like what they're doing and, and with David Grush's you know, explanation. He's so physics-oriented. I love, love the way he speaks. But he points out that calling them aliens is ridiculous because we don't actually have enough data to know where they come from. Mm. His point is they've probably been here long before humans because they've been around with these technologies 
likely millions of years versus our mere 300,000 years of humans, they've been around longer on earth likely than us. Mm. And so what they're doing here, who knows, is this something they call home or is this an outpost? Is this a biologic experiment they're running here on the planet to create life? Who knows? But the fact is to call them alien is probably ridiculous because it suggests that they're over there and we're over here and they're from that star and we're from this star. And that's just not how life exists. We are all an expression of one thing all the end. And we are all home all the time. Mm. And I want to just emphasize that because I'm somebody who has walked around for decades feeling not at home. I had a box of belief about who I was and therefore I felt like an alien in my own planet. And I felt like I was not part of this human system because I didn't understand it. It didn't feel like home. It didn't feel comfortable. Mm. And in the end, I find out we are all home all of the time, everywhere in the universe, because we are the vibration of one source. We are the vibration of this universe. And this universe is expressing all of life here, all of it, whether it be from distant star systems or Earth, it's all there. Mm. And so first of all, there is no such thing as alien. There's only home and life is home in this universe. Hmm. And so that's a reframing that I think we desperately need as we start to come to terms with all this news pouring out now from governments and everything else. As we come to terms with the fact that not only were there species recovered in these wrecks, there were living species recovered in these wrecks. Hmm. And so these governments are now coming forward or at least government officials coming forward to acknowledge that there have been treaties signed with these other uh, species. And the U.S. seems to, by David's report and others, seems to be pointing to the Eisenhower administration to be the first president to sign a treatise with an, uh, a non-human race or human species. An extraterrestrial. Wow. I mean, it, a terrestrial at this point. Right. <laughs> They're here. Right. Where they come from could be debated. Right. But it, a non-human intelligence. Yeah. I'll give it that. If I were to follow this down a path, because I'm still hyper skeptical about this, but if I follow down a path, what you're saying is it's potential that it's not extraterrestrial at all. It's just a species that started here and maybe went somewhere else and came back. That's a that's one of many possibilities. Mm. Yeah. And, and David lays that out, that it's possible things are coming from distant parts of the, these you know 2.5 trillion galaxies. But it's also possible we're looking at a future version of us that's mm. simply developed nonlinear reality because you, you you mentioned the slit experiment. What they prove is the slit experiment is time is totally relative, right? That's relativity with Einstein and everybody else saying actually time is totally bendable and you can bend space time. You can connect this dot in time to this distant dot in time. You can bring them right together and it can be the same thing. So as our species continues to progress, isn't it likely that over the next million years we get nonlinear relationship through relativity and improved technologies for quantum physics interaction, all of that, or either that we get to the point where we let go of all, so much biologic trauma in our genetics. And I let go of my ancestry completely. And I become so present that I am the, the highest technology in the land. Mm. And my body can now do space-time bending because I am no longer tied to a root system of epigenetic trauma. And so I believe we really are the highest technology on the planet. I mm. believe that nothing here, no spacecraft, anything else competes with the brilliance of what lies within me. And that technology, I believe, can do all kinds of things that we can't yet imagine in the human mind. And so is it really extraterrestrial intelligence we're dealing with? Or is it a future us that's coming back to try to move us forward? Oh, wow. Are they actually working with, with us, not against us? It's possible. 
And so these are the, these are the framings that I would invite all of you in the audience to start to, to just tr- sit with. Because I don't have your truths. I don't have your answers to this. And you're going to have to take in this information from not just David Grush, but P- Professor Nolan. A couple articles have already come out from Professor Nolan at Stanford. Uh, Nolan was approached by the CIA. He's a, a pathologist, microbiologist. Um, they approached him with 100 cases of, of humans that were presenting with very strange diseases and didn't tell him uh, anything more than that. Can you figure out what's going on in the neurology and the brains of these humans? And as a pathologist, microbiologist, he started to dissect kind of what was the, the common injury at the neurology level of these people. And Dr. Nolan was then introduced to the reality that all of these people had one thing in common is that they were exposed to extraterrestrial intelligence or, mm. or, or some sort of technologies coming from these non-human sources. And so these soldiers and other people being exposed to these technologies had these deep injuries to their, their, their life form. Mm. And so they were trying to tease that out. So that was Nolan's introduction to, you know, this whole concept. And he's been able to, you know, be with and, and, and spend time with one of those orb technologies that you've seen on you know, a lot of the military air force images that are done of UFOs. You see these very fast traveling 20,000 mile an hour orbs that travel. They're just spheres that seem to have no propulsion, anything else. Mm-hmm. And so he's been able to study that one of those technologies and try to figure out what is the, what is the radiation source or whatever it is. And the answer is it's these isotopes of metals that, that don't really mm-hmm. exist on the planet. And so there seems to be some sort of true extraterrestrial energies or extraterrestrial materials within these technologies, whatever is being used, mm-hmm. or it's an ability of humans to start to do transmutation of the elements where we can start to build elements from the periodic table with, with further discovery. So, so he's uncovering that biologic side while, while David is, is, you know, uncovering, you know, through the, through the Department of Defense. Again, he's Department of Defense contractor's wife, CIA. Like, it's not like this is tinfoil wearing people in, in New Mexico. This is really the, the heart of our government and, and special forces and, and central intelligence agencies coming forward with this information. And again, I want to take us back to forgiveness mm. because I believe that one of our greatest dangers at this moment as this information comes out is that we further divide ourselves mm. and we fear again. And I started talking about this in podcasts during the pandemic when they started to release all the UFO data. I was like, ah, oh, this is perfect preparation for the next biggest fear paradigm story. Mm. So here we were in the biggest fear story that had ever been told. Here's a virus that's going to kill the planet. Everybody needs to go in your home. We're going to put tanks in the street. We're going to lock you all down for your own safety. And then as that started to remit and go away, oh my gosh, government's got alien information, Mm -hmm. all of these UFOs, the aliens are going to attack us. We need to print as the U.S. $40 trillion and we need to put tanks in the street. You need to go back in your home to hide away from the attack. Mm -hmm. And so I'm nervous that we're going to turn this into a fear paradigm instead of an opportunity to connect to a a universal intelligence. I want to get all the facts on the table here in a moment. And I also want to spend some time interrogating those facts mm. together. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, to TK's. Yeah. Uh, he came here with half his brain tied behind his back, so I'm going to need him to untie that. <laughs> well, yeah. he, he, hold on. He, oh, he, was, he was hospitalized recently, and, and so he's... Yeah, and I'm a little he, drugged up and all that stuff. <laughs> he's 
back right now. This is the second episode since that hospitalization. But mm-hmm. I do want to interrogate those facts. I want to get them on the table. And I think the three of us, we need to find ways to push back in a way that helps give us a deeper understanding of exactly what the implications are of that. So I think we'll spend another 30 or 45 minutes talking about that. But first, let me play a few minimalist insights from some of our listeners. Hi, this message is for the breakup episode. Hi, this is Tess in Seattle, and I recently had a breakup with a boyfriend. And and this is more of a comment than a question. I have just found that being in situations that are not the right situations to be in, be it family, friends, or a boyfriend, sometimes have us do things that are not so good. And sometimes that means buying things or being more, I guess, of a consumer than an experiencer of things. And I have found that since my breakup, things just really don't matter. And uh, life is actually pretty awesome and experiences me more and more. And I just think that sometimes we don't realize that we're in the middle of something that isn't the right place. So keep an eye, I guess, in my ideas, keeping an eye on when are you doing things that aren't healthy and when are you doing other things in your private time that aren't optimal. And then stop and think what's around you and, and what makes you do that. Thank you. Welcome back, y'all. We're here with Dr. Zach Bush. We've been talking about decluttering the gut, and then we we felt like we took a hard pivot, <laughs> but maybe it wasn't that big no. of a pivot. Yeah. We're talking about the gut, and from a, a macro level, it seems to me that we're talking about almost the, the gut of the universe mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I, where did you want to pick it up here? Because yeah. uh, wh- what we just did is we skipped the lightning round. We talked about, we sort of opened up the, this, uh, this treasure chest of information. And we want to dive deep. We want to interrogate it so we can better understand it as well. Mm. So where's the best place to start? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'd like to go back just a little bit. So... At lunch, um, you had said to me that there's a pretty big story that's getting ready to break, which is this this David Grush story. And so I, I do want to talk about like exactly who he is and what his story is. Mm-hmm. But also, the reasoning why you wanted to be on this podcast is, uh, you know, about how we can process this this uh, information. But maybe we start first with. Just, yeah, just talking about who David Grush is and kind of what what his story is. And yeah, what your connection is to, to this story. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think f- even before talking about Professor Nolan or David or whatever, talk about it, the question of why now is important. So mm-hmm. why now is because the Department of Defense, out of sheer frustration over all of the closed doors that were happening for their own investigations into you know, extraterrestrial intelligence, technologies, everything else. So we've been under a very intense multi-year you know, uh, year studies trying to get this information from their own agencies. And there were so many blocked doors, slam doors to getting this information out that they finally uh, worked with the president to um, create a, a body of legislation, creating amnesty for people coming forward for, with this information. Mm-hmm. So until there was that amnesty protection, there, it was not, it, you, nobody was able to get the big picture. Mm. And so, like I said, is this really conspiracy theory or is this, again, a military, you know, extraction, abstraction of technology that's been around, you know, us for hundreds of years. And as we came in contact with that information, we weapon, tried to weaponize it mm. rather than, you know, maybe learn more holistically of like, 
what does propulsion look like that takes no fossil fuel? What does propulsion take like that doesn't use radiation? Like, you know, could have been a lot of directions we went, but we went military because we were in a cold war with Russia. And before that, we were in, in, in the war with Germany. And mm. so I, this war abstraction led to this fear paradigm to protect that. We divided up all the information behind closed doors, many, many, t- nobody getting the full picture. Uh, both private sector, military sector, all this is the story that's coming out around the program. So the program is now being able to be unmasked because of the amnesty passed under the Biden administration for people coming forward from the government with this information. So it's allowing doors to open that have remained closed. Mm. But it's it's interesting, I think, in the interview, when you listen to David, you he goes into great detail. Like, this wasn't actually like, you know, people trying to lie. It was people afraid of the information getting out, you know? And so it's, I think that's really important for us to understand. This isn't the U.S. government against you or trying to lie to you. I think it's just a fear of members within that thing that have been given a very tight bandwidth of information in a fear paradigm reacting to that in a predictable fashion. Mm. And so this whole thing isn't even really, doesn't even need to be a cover-up. It just needs to be human behavior. Mm, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Humans that are afraid of fear and afraid of something bigger than ourselves, such that we had to create our narratives around, you know, angels and everything else. Like mm-hmm. we've created all kinds of narrative to protect ourselves from the idea that we might be vulnerable to mm. things bigger than ourselves. Mm. And so angels may exist, you know, entities may exist that protect us. All of this may be true. But when we stop telling those narratives out of fear and start reconnecting ourselves to the possibility of maybe we are actually the purpose mm. of life. Mm. Maybe, maybe we're right in the middle of it. Maybe we are literally in the middle of it. So that's why it took us an hour to even get to this stuff is I want you to know that science is proving that we are in the middle of it. We are the intention mm. of the universe. We are the thing. And when I say we, it's not just humans. It's life mm. is the intention of the universe or source, or God, whatever you want to put the name on it for. We are the purpose. We are an expression of the universe at its center point. What does the universe want to express? It wants to express something that can witness its own beauty. Mm. And that's what our religious texts have been saying for thousands of years. We are the bride of God. Mm. We are married to the source. What does that mean? It means we can be seen by and loved, and we can see it and love it for its beauty. We're at the center of this, people. And that's why I wanted to be on this podcast because you, you're going to find out way cooler stuff from David and uh, Dr. Nolan and all that than you'll ever find from me. I wanted to come on here to frame this as the possibility of, is this the greatest moment in human history when we can finally let go of the genetics of fear? Mm, yeah. And we find out that there is not only evidence, there is relationships with extra human life. Mm. And there are treaties among multiple governments, as you'll find out from David and all the rest, multiple species. It's not like one species came here and, and populated the planet. It's, we have multiple species that are working with governments across the world for 90 years or more with government documents now starting to be released, showing our relationship to these other intelligent forces. And so what do we do with that information, I think, is why I want to just bring us all together right now. And just ask, can we be a center point of humanity Hmm. that begins a narrative of life is the intention of all things and life is multifaceted and just as the gut microbiome only functions in its diversity, I believe that the universe in life 
only functions for its diversity. Hmm. You called it the gut of the universe. And I think that's really apropos. Life in its biodiversity across the 2.5 trillion galaxies is what keeps the expression of the universe visible. Hmm. The expression of the universe is life. And it's nearly impossible for me to imagine a universe of 2.5 trillion galaxies that doesn't want to be seen. Yeah, that's the the cogito, right? Mm. The I am, where it that it's the only thing we know for certain, right? Because without the life to experience the universe, is there actually a universe? It's a hell of a of a paradox there. Mm. TK, where do you want to take it from here? Because I'd like to get some facts on the table. Uh, I'd like to figure out Dr. Bush's role in understanding all of this, but I'd like to understand where you want to go. Yeah. Well, first, uh, I think your idea that um, that the the purpose of existence is is the expression or or culmination of life itself is not only profound but maybe one of the more unifying ideas mm. there is, right? Because when we make decisions and so many things seem difficult, how do we resolve conflict? What choice do we make? All right, well, what tends towards the flourishing of life? What tends towards the nurturing of life? The truth usually is in that direction. The right thing is usually in that direction. Um, James Baldwin once said that nothing is more important than a human being. I like your version of it. Nothing is more important than life itself. Mm. I just want to affirm that. Mm. And I want to spend some time with that. Regarding the David Grush stuff, I I, I just kind of want to ask a few questions just to sort of make explicit what I think is being said, what I think is just so we can understand first before analyzing. I, I think a lot of discussions and debates spend too little time defining the terms, clarifying what's being said, and people spend a whole lot of time um, arguing past each other or talking about two different things. Mm. So my understanding is there is a really high up person named David Grush who has an interview where he's going to be revealing some highly sensitive, previously protected information about the nature of what has been called extraterrestrial life or aliens. And he is going to confirm in a way that is unprecedented that these beings or these kinds of intelligence not only exist, but have been involved in human life perhaps longer than we have thought. And this this is essentially a groundbreaking interview. Is that, am I correct in that understanding? Yeah, and, and he's one of you know, a whole group that's come forward first. He's the first one through the gate and he's got, and he speaks to this during the interview of, yep. there's a whole bunch of people waiting to see if I survive. You know, mm. Am I, you know, obliterated in my career? Am I obliterated? You know, yep. what happens to me when I come out and tell this under the new amnesty laws uh, under President okay. Biden's uh, amnesty out of the Department of Defense? And remember, this is this is a big aha moment for us, I think, when you start to realize that our own government is fighting against our own government. Mm. The Department of Defense is so frustrated that it can't get information on what seems very strategically important is, are there aliens that are flying around and interacting with our Air Force every single day? Mm. Because they, the Air Force continues to send more and more messages. Every single day, there's some something coming in. There's information coming in. There's a sighting. There's a close encounter with one of our fighter pilots. Like, it's constant. And so the Department of Defense is dealing with that and feeling like it, it can't get the answers from its own sister agencies. Mm, yeah. And so 
is it really conspiracy theory? No, it's just typical human behavior, which is, well, that's our information. Well, that's our information. And you remember the FBI never shared information with CIA and everything else because they were, the Bureau was always in battle with the other one and blah, blah, blah. And then finally they were brought together at, at the National Ground Intelligence Center, which is just adjacent to where, where I work and out of Virginia. And that's the first time when this, it's actually bizarre because it's actually a private agency. It's not even a government agency brought together FBI, CIA, and all of the, the branches of the military to be in one place to start to, sh- to share information and start to work on projects that are there. And that's mm-hmm. David's intention. And that's Dr. Nolan's intention of bringing this forward. And they feel like we have done ourselves a massive disservice by keeping this isolated behind closed doors because what would have happened if in the 1960s we had thousands of MIT graduates working on this stuff to create free energy, clean energy, you know, nuclear solutions, blah, blah, blah. Like they're sitting there thinking we're, we're 90 years behind because mm-hmm. we were afraid of the Russians and the Russians were afraid of us. So we try to militarize everything and we... We weren't thinking holistically about this. And so they're coming forward not as an expose on the government, as an effort to bring this information to the mainstream so that all of the resources of humanity can start to ask these critical questions. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? Mm. And we can ask those questions with a new humility that has been desperately needed and a new love, perhaps, for our own species. And so my hope, and I think many people in the government's hope, is that this stuff is a new galvanizing amalgam of information that can allow us to become a new alloy at the, mm. at the consciousness level that says, oh my God, we are only human for our biodiversity. And in our biodiversity, we could work together to create a holistic approach to a society where we start to have one wavelength, one waveform of information that emanates through all of us not to say that we think the same thing. In fact, we now know that we can't think the same thing. We have to all think differently. Mm-hmm. So all of you who are reacting to this information right now, you'll go see Dave Nolan's interview. You'll react to that as well. You'll have a million emotions based on your ancestral patterns of, of trauma. You're going to react to this information differently. And your information of trauma from your relatives has given you strong hold on maybe your psycho-spiritual aspects, your religious constructs and identities. This is going to challenge you uniquely. Mm. The feelings you're having right now listening to this is much different than the feelings I had when I heard this information initially, which is different than what your guys are feeling as it hits you. Well, what I feel is quite often what happens are these... We had a, a cult specialist on the show, and she talked about quite often we use these thought-terminating cliches mm-hmm. to shut people down, right? And so we can, as soon as I heard it, Ryan called me, I'm like, oh, no, this is kooky. That's a thought-terminating cliche, mm-hmm. right? And, and you can think of a dozen other thought-terminating. That's a conspiracy theory. Right. That's yeah. a thought-terminating cliche. Yep. It's, it, this is the devil, Right. Another thought terminating cliche. Right. And it's whatever we use to get people to stop thinking, to stop investigating, to stop questioning, Mm. will throw up these barriers. They're thought terminating cliches because, and we otherize them. And that has been a common theme here from the very beginning. When when we started talking about decluttering the gut, what we're talking about is making the gut sterile, which is so obscene, right? Because now the gut is separate from the rest of your body. It's like your your brain and your, your body aren't standing in separate corners of the room, but your gut and your body aren't standing in separate corners of the room either. 
but there is no separate corner of the room. It is all one. It's the Alan Watts thing where he said, you didn't come into this world, you came out of it, right? Mm. You are a part of this world. The thing that is so frustrating is when we otherize people so much, even we have this governing body that's supposed to be together, and then they create, as you just mentioned, the CIA versus the FBI, and now they're they're warring against each other because I, I'm on this pedestal or you're on this pedestal or you are other, you are different. And it all gets back to exactly what you were talking about a moment ago with fear. And the reason that we otherize other people is because of fear, whether it's fear of death, fear of pain, fear of losing the self ultimately. Mm. And what happens in order for me to extinguish that fear? I don't really extinguish. I hide the fear. It's like painting a burning house doesn't actually do anything for the burning house. It makes it look prettier as the whole thing burns to the ground here. And I think that's quite often what what fear does and the otherizing of someone else does is it is not addressing the actual cause that's that's causing the fear. Mm. It is addressing, um, it's covering up the fear in a way. So I'd like to get a few facts onto the table here. I feel like we're we're talking about this, but for your average listener who is is listening or, or watching this right now, what you are saying is that it appears that we humans have been interacting with what we would talk about colloquially as aliens for a long period of time. And um, while that seems crazy to me in the moment, it may be crazy only because of my societal conditioning that I've been taught through a series of thought terminating cliches Mm -hmm. that that is supposed to be crazy. And if I even entertain the thought, there's something wrong with me. And so the question I want to posit to Dr. Bush here is something that he said about David Grush. David is worried about his career being over whatever. But my first thought when Ryan came to me is, isn't Zach Bush terrified of talking about stuff like this? Because this could end his career and people will stop taking him seriously. Mm. Yeah, no, I've been doing that for 15 years. (laughs) The moment I left the university, I was absolutely shunned. People would not talk to me that I had learned under. These were my mentors. These were my most trusted tribe. Wouldn't talk to me. And this is because suddenly it was like Zach saying that you can cure disease with food. That's crazy. He was a chemotherapy guy. And now he's saying that you can cure cancer with food. Like, don't take that risk, Zach. Like, Mm. You know, we, we know that food can't kill cancer. Yeah. yeah. That was a third rail issue and still is a third rail still, issue. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous to say. Yeah. And so I've gotten used to deconstructing what I'm holding on to tightly. Yeah. And the thing that I was holding on to tightly for a long time was my, my, my reputation via my specialty in medicine. Mm-hmm. I had a good reputation because I was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I've just been steadily realizing that my only reputation that matters anymore, that only reputation that dictates my health and happiness is my reputation to myself. Mm-hmm. And am I willing to continue to accept half-truths as reality at the decrement of my relationship to self? And so as new information comes into my experience, am I willing to experientially learn 
or am I going to hold on to my education? And all you have to do is look up those two words, education versus learning, to realize how did we get ourselves to this situation where we all have thought terminating language and lexicon in everything we do. Mm-hmm. And what is a thought terminating word? It is a word that has been linked to an emotion of fear, guilt, or shame. Hmm. It's not the word. Like you can say conspiracy theory and it's a few consonants and a few vowels thrown together. That doesn't stop neurology. Right. What stops it is the emotion of shame that's attached to that word. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you know, you believe in a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and, and so it's just, we're starting to recognize that my behavior is being truncated at every level by my addiction to fear, guilt, and shame. Yes. And that has kept me from being myself. Mm. Myself is an expression of my true experience. Mm. And as I've went through my own near-death experience, as well as sat with you know thousands of patients on hospice and ICUs and watching them do their near-death experiences, crossing the veil, coming back, crossing the veil, coming back, the really, really cool news is their identity is intact when they let go of the body. Mm-hmm. They never get confused about who they are. Yes. They're like, oh, I was outside of the body and I was having this experience looking back at my body or I came back into my body and I had this experience outside the body and now I have this body and I'm in this body, but I now know I can actually be clairvoyant. I can see things happening around the planet that I can't in a human body, but I can do that and I know who I am. Hmm. The fact that you can let go of your body and be more clear on who you are, not less. How do I live like that? How do I live every day like I just died? Hmm. And that's my passion in life for the last 10 years, big time, but starting about 15 years ago, where it was felt so good to be me. And for that, I've had to lose my identity over and over and over again, which has been a very traumatic journey Yeah, that for a long time, I wasn't even willing to feel the journey. And so Mm -hmm. I had to keep repeating the lessons, repeating it, repeating, repeating, because I wasn't willing to feel the journey. I was willing to psychologically, analytically do the journey of surrender. But was I willing to feel that? And that only happened about two years ago. And that was worked through a body of of wisdom that came through a woman in the 1960s and 70s that's been termed the the course of miracles. Mm. And that course suddenly triggered something in me that released me to feel. And at that moment, I, of course, wept, but I also laughed and I just felt this exuberance, orgasmic energy inside of me as I started to lean into that more and more in life. And so this is why I have no fear of talking about bacteria and nutrition as a source of cancer therapy or extraterrestrial intelligence outside of the planet within 2.5 trillion other galaxies. It's because I know it's true because when I go leaning into that, I become more me. I become more I become more dead to the old me today and I feel more alive every second. That is my new instrument of truth. Am I more alive or am I more muted? Am I more free or am I more confined Mm. by the information somebody's trying to give me? If you are feeling overwhelmed right now, it's because the doors are coming off your box and that feels scary Mm -hmm. because you're developing freedom. You have to kick that bird out out of the nest at some point and fly because that nest is damn comfortable Mm -hmm. but imagine the elation of flying and this is an invitation for humanity to start to fly 
because we have been in our little comfortable nest, afraid of fear, afraid of pain, drugging ourselves into this stupor. And we are dead long before we take our first breath because we are epigenetically programmed in the womb with 40 generations of trauma and we are not freaking alive people. And so how did three other species show up here to colonialize this planet and put us probably in non-ideal relationships that are extractive to our planet and maybe ourselves? Because we were so freaking afraid that we were going to die that we were unwilling to live. Mm -hmm. This moment, as we start to come to terms with gut intelligence all the way to extra human intelligence, and we sit somewhere in the middle of that, are we willing to be free? Are we willing to let the doors come off the box? And the discomfort you're feeling right now might be you falling out of the nest and all you got to do is open your wings. You know, I think believing weird things or just being different, it's kind of like speaking in a funny accent. Um, people will accept it as long as it sounds authentic and as long as you're willing to listen to them speak however they speak. Mm. But if it, if it comes off fake, you know, you're the guy who walks into a high school, you turn your baseball cap to the back, you're like, yo, 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 how it be, fellow kids? <laughs> they're going to see right through you and, and they're going to dismiss you. But on the other hand, if you walk in there confidently and you're like, hey, I'm an old man, I have no clue what kind of music you guys listen to. What do you listen to? They'll talk to you and they'll tell you. They'll treat you like you're an uncle or like you're a grandfather. And yes, they accept the grandfathers and the uncles they have in their life as perfectly okay. You actually don't need to be like them in order to be liked by them. And I think now is a time where people are more embracing than ever before of weird conversations about weird things. None of the podcasts that are doing well are flirting with normalcy anymore. Mm. The things that are grabbing people's attention are conversations like this, life beyond the planet, life underneath, within the planet. How deep is the ocean? We keep coming back to all that kind of stuff, you know? Um, and so I, I don't think it's going to be a threat to you at all for you to talk about this kind of stuff. I think the people who love you will perceive what's behind this conversation as the very energy of, of what they love about you in the first place. Um, I'll tell you my, my element of fear, if, if I want to use that word with respect to this whole conversation. It's not that we're talking about aliens and it's not that somebody's going to be mad at me for talking about it. In fact, I think if you went and took a survey and asked people like, hey, do you believe there's extraterrestrial intelligence? Not only would most of those people have thought about this question before and played the game mm -hmm. with family and friends. But apart from maybe people that are like running for office right now, everybody's going to give an answer. And a lot of people will be like, yeah, probably so. Um, my, my, my concern is that for those of us who enjoy these conversations, who, who have kind of like delved into the, the rabbit holes and so forth. I remember uh, Stanton Friedman, the nuclear physicist who's, known as the godfather of Roswell. He went on Larry King with Michael Shermer from um, Skeptic Magazine, along with the son of the man who first collected the debris. And uh, Dr. Freeman is considered like the, uh, the first civilian investigator of Roswell. And they had this really great ecumenical conversation on Larry King Live and went down that Roswell rabbit hole, watched all his videos. And, and, and one of the things about the, the, uh, the UFO communities, if you will, is that there's always the promise of disclosure Disclosure forthcoming, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh man, like uh, before every president gets elected, right? Like, oh, uh, Bush is going to be the guy to disclose it. Obama's going to be the guy to disclose it. Trump is going to be the guy to disclose it. And it's 
it just all turns out to be like a big nothing burger, right? Mm. And so my question for you, given the amount of promises that have been made of disclosure and confirmation and hard evidence, I, I, I have Neil deGrasse Tyson in the back of my head. And I, and, I, and I have him in his animated way that Neil speaks, you know, like, I don't want to hear any more stories about a, a person who talked with a person who talked with a person who said this or that. Like, show, show me something. Give, get, next time an alien abducts you, he says, I want you to just like, when, when you come to consciousness and, and, and you look around, just grab a remote control. Just grab one of those alien remote controls, put it in your pocket, yeah. get something tangible and concrete so people can look at it and be like, oh, wow. That's specific confirmation of a general thing that we all kind of already feel safe talking about as a possibility. So my question for you is, what do you think makes this disclosure, if we can call it that, what do you think makes this different? What do you think separates this from conversations that have been had in the past with people that say, hey, I'm, I'm an important guy who's worked in an important position in government, and I've talked with another important person who has confirmed for me aliens exist. Mm -hmm. What separates this? Yeah, I think the only reason that I have confidence that it's coming out is because it is coming out. <laughs> and to see the president of the United States sign an amnesty over his own departments to bring forward this information has never happened before. So we're seeing a le level of curiosity and a sense of need for the whole picture at the top of our country for the first time in a 90-year program. Why is that happening? I think it actually has nothing to do with the president. It has nothing to do with the U.S. government. I think it has to do with humanity, hmm. is that we are coming to a pivot point where we either march into our extinction over the next 60, 80 years because we destroy the ecosystem, the gut of the planet so thoroughly that life ceases. The farmers on, that are really leading the charge on studying soil science and everything else are saying we got about 55, 60 harvests left on the planet. Hmm. We talked about earlier the fact that when you develop fear of your own food and you can no longer connect to the experience of being nourished by this planet, you go into a catastrophic anxiety disorder. Yeah. Humanity is now in that catastrophic anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. We are going extinct, people. Mm. We can map it out through ecosystem collapse. We've got you know, 80, 90 years left at best. It looks like you know, Davos scientists are telling us we've got eight years left until the ocean acidifies and we have a massive extinction event. We've wiped out about 50% of life on Earth over the last 50 years. Like, you know, so we're at the bubble now. And so we're either going to march into our anxiety and fear of death in a stupor of drug and in a stupor of, of a induced state of comfort. And we just kind of go into our little food coma, drug coma, et cetera, and we, we disappear. Or we come to terms with a wound and we start to ask these deeper questions. The U.S. is collapsing. I don't know if everybody's comfortable with that news, but the U.S. is fundamentally collapsing and has been for decades. But we are now on an accelerated collapse. We needed the $4 trillion that we planted with the, the pandemic to just buoy up a GDP that is so fragile right now mm. because we stopped producing anything in this country. We just move money around and that's how we quote unquote make money. Yeah. But it turns out moving money around is not real. And so we stopped being a real productive country sometime between 1980s and 1990s. And we became an abstract economy. Yeah. And that abstract economy is now running on fumes because it's not built on anything real. And we are so deep in debt to China that we cannot keep up with our payments. Everybody's in the news now saying that in the next two weeks, the government runs out of money. 
we, and if, if the government does not approve raising our debt ceiling, we cannot meet our bills, which means we can't pay Medicaid, Medicare, we can't pay Social Security, we can't pay foreign governments that we owe money to. We're at the end, people. The only reason we were paying them this month is because we raised the debt ceiling a few years back and we keep mm-hmm. ratcheting up that debt ceiling saying, you know what, it's okay for the U.S. to go $125 trillion in debt. And so if we keep raising these debt ceilings, we will stay in this insoluble state of a, a palliation on a dead society, mm-hmm. on a dead economy. And it is a society that I think is dead because we were so afraid to die. And that fear, we became the United States that beyond all other things, let's believe we are the best nation ever. And let's ignore all of the facts. And let's just keep telling each other that we're here to save the world. We are dying as a species. We are dying as a nation. We are dying as a society. And so we either go into the wound now and find the antidote. And what I'm trying to explain today is the antidote is the trust that we are here on purpose. Mm. Antidote is we actually needed this catastrophic journey. We needed the wound to be so deep that we would uncover the ultimate antidote, which is to say everything is connected and nothing is temporal. Light does carry all the information. Light does express the universe. Light does know the original math. And the thing that keeps me knowing my identity when I leave this body and come back into it is some sort of bizarre biogeometry or physics structure that holds self, that holds an identity that can animate biology for a moment and then let go of it and still be self, the I am. And so all of these experiential learnings of my life and doctoring and everything else is taking me to this wonderful perspective on the human condition, which is this is perfect. Mm. We're in the ICU. We are on absolute life support as a planet, as a species. And why are all the extraterrestrials pounding in here right now? Because we are on the bubble and they know if we fuck this up, we're going to lose 4 billion years of progress. And that's even a pretty big bill Mm. for intelligence within the universe, perhaps. And so is it possible that the whole universe has been nurturing this planet into its full potential? Is it possible that we have gardeners that travel from galaxy to galaxy gardening planets into their full potential? possibility, seeding new genetics, seeding new life so that it could express it. Is there a compost program among the galaxies? Hmm. I don't know, but it seems freaking likely. Hmm. If I was Elon Musk, I would be working really hard right now. What are we bringing to Mars to grow some food? Hmm. We need to get some biology into that planet. Hmm. We need to seed some life into Mars if we're going to have colonies there. Hmm. Isn't it pretty obvious that anybody who developed the capacity to move from terrestrial to terrestrial settings would know how to support life? And so have we been nurtured into our existence on this planet by an intelligence that predates the 200,000 years of human behavior that's animated at every level, no matter how ancient those life forms are, they are animated by something that supersedes the biology of what they express in its physics. And in that physics is a bunch of IMs. Hmm. There's a bunch of perfect geometries that spin in physical space that somehow are a perfect fractal of whatever we would call God, whatever we call the universe, that holds a space-time continuum, some sort of consciousness 
angle, some sort of geometry that can capture information that comes in from the cosmos in the form of light. And it can process that into a conscious expression of I am. And then it can come into a human body for a moment. Hmm. And if you've ever spent time in the wild and you've had one of those moments where a wild animal connects with you, you realize that thing has got to have some sort of physics thing that animates that body to you. And if you've ever sat under a tree for a few hours and felt into the energy of that thing, there's an energy center that that activates that oak to be an oak. There is an I am behind that oak. There is an I am behind that lion. There is an I am behind that feather. There is an I am behind that mountain. Physical matter is simply an expression of biogeometry that spins in vacuum space to organize light into physical structures. Mm. The I am is always here. And we have an opportunity to find that deep in the wound of humanity right now. And coming out of that, we could begin to heal things that have never been even understood as wounds themselves. And we can start to heal this planet and we can heal this species fast enough that there isn't a sixth extinction that completes. Hmm. And that's why I'm here on this podcast is people can say whatever they want about this information or myself or whatever, it's irrelevant Because there's only one thing that matters now is the frequency of recovery. And that frequency of recovery is based on our capacity to see beauty. And if we can see beauty, then we resonate in a frequency that we call love. And you mentioned that there was a bunch of people listening to this and you thought, well, people aren't going to stop loving you for that. That's an emotional love. People who feel something towards Zach Bush they're, they're experiencing something that has been labeled love, but it's actually probably the emotion of like acceptance or, oh, he, he thinks like me, that's my tribe. That's, it's actually not love. Right. Because I have so much egoic shield up as a human being, so you can't see my beauty. Yeah. So you can't actually love me. And so I sit around sulking. I'm unloved. I, I'm unlovable. It's because I can't show you my beauty because I'm too afraid of you. You told a great story, <laughs> Dr. Bush. We were at a uh, event recently with you and you were on stage talking and mm. you talked about this moment where these two white lions witnessed you in Africa. And to me, that's what love is, to see someone for who they are, not for who they pretend to be, not for the job title that's on their business card, not for their website or their bio, right? Not for the awards they've won or the degrees they've achieved or the money they've made or their follower count on social media. Because those lions, they don't care about any of those things. They don't know anything about those things. And yet they witnessed you. And in that moment, you recognize that oh, wait a minute, this is the ego dissolving, right? Because it was never really there anyway. That's mm. all a story that I tell myself. And most of the time, it's an incredibly disempowering and self-limiting story. And it actually prevents other people and other entities from witnessing you. That's right. Mm. We, want, we are too afraid to be seen until nature sees us. And then we see our own beauty for a moment. And then we fall in love with ourselves for the first moment. And then I immediately step back into society and people and I develop fear and I develop shame and I go back into my self-destructive, disempowered state. And then I stretch back into it for a moment. And so right now, I have these moments of feeling like I am the universe experiencing a human. Mm. But by and large, I'm a human running around afraid of the universe. Mm. Mm. And so this is our moment, people. 
can you come to terms with the fact that the universe is expressing itself through you and you are the brightest thing it's ever created? In the biologic form that you are, you're 10,000 times brighter than the sun, cubic centimeter. Can you come to terms with that? Can you imagine the beauty that the universe sees when it looks at a planet of 8 billion suns burning that bright? Mm. 8 billion burning that bright. Can you imagine the beauty of this planet from these extraterrestrial sources, perhaps? Why are they here? Because it's freaking beautiful people. Mm -hmm. Mm. And if they wanted to destroy you, they would have destroyed you. Our governments are trying to reverse technology, their, their battle sequences to go kill each other. They clearly have something we don't have. They could have just annihilated us easily a million years ago, probably. It was certainly 90 years ago. But the skirmish wasn't against us. It was between them. Roswell was two species in combat that shot each other down. And we recovered species and technologies as David and the rest will continue to unfold for us in detail. They were in conflict with one another. What do we find out about that? The colonial mind is not limited to the human experience. Right. We have species that have not freed themselves of fear, guilt, and shame. We have species that are still living for all of their longevity and for all the millions of years they might have ahead of us. They're still living in a, a, a state of scarcity. So they're on a planet that they're now extracting from. And there are species that have become into that benevolent freedom from fear, guilt, and shame, and they're here protecting us. And so is this not just another human moment that's expressing us itself in non-human entities? We have a choice, people. We either accept the fact that we're not alone, or we continue to delude ourselves deeper and deeper with stories of aloneness, mm. and we will die lonely and in pain and suffering, or we start to accept that we were an expression of the universe, and we can choose our path now. Mm. Do we want to be in a million years a species that continues in scarcity model of fear, guilt, and shame and colonialism and we've now taken over Mars and killed that planet long ago and now we've moved on to the next, killed that planet long ago and we're moving from planet to planet, extracting and killing and killing. and Do we want that path? Because other species are doing that path. And they're working with our governments that are signing treaties to say, yeah, you can extract from us as long as you don't kill us. Hmm. You can take whatever you want, just... Make sure that we get the technology before the Russians so that we can kill the Russians. Yeah. This, this, is, this is easy to picture once you back up far enough. It's like, oh, it's only two realities. One that's based out of fear, guilt, and shame, and one that is built in the frequency of beauty. And that's where I feel like we stand. It's not really about extinction or not extinction. It's about the frequency of beauty and love or the frequency of fear, guilt, and shame. Light carries both of those infinitely through the universe and it expresses life all over the universe in one of those two forms. And we get to choose. I really believe we have free will right now to choose which path we take. Man, I, uh, <clears throat> I really want to um, talk to uh, Ryan Nicodemus at 22 years old. So let's say the story breaks tomorrow and like there is some very legitimate... Um, testimonies and evidence that says, Hey, like we are, you know, we're not, we're not alone. Um, the 22 year old Ryan Nicodemus, who was, uh, one of Jehovah's witnesses would have said, uh, that's the devil. That is, um, you know, this is the devil masquerading as something else. And he's trying to lead us away from God. And like, I would go through that, that, that line of thinking. And the reason being is, is that, um, my identity was so wrapped up 
in that religion that anything outside of it, uh, I would have those thought terminating cliches. And that's one of the reasons why I was really um, excited to have you on the podcast is because if this, if, if you know, when this news breaks, I'll start talking about it like that. When this news breaks, because I, my gut says that you are delivering your truth right now. And um, I can't argue with, with how I feel. So when this breaks, uh, I think people are going to be challenged in that, in that all the people who are similar to the 22-year-old Ryan Nicodemus, like it's going to be very difficult to, um, to hear this information and to process it because our identities are so wrapped up in religion. But here's what I want to posit. When you look at um, Christianity, for example, by the way, this is not a knock against any religion. This is just an observation. When you look at Christianity and you look at how we've got to where we're at with the ideology, um, we got there through records and, and, and word of mouth, and we feel it in our gut, right? But I would posit that the conversation we're having right now, it's, it's the same exact it's, it's coming through the same exact way in the sense of there are testimonies, there are, you know, some evidence here and there, and, and we feel it in our gut. And I'm only saying this because <clears throat> I really, uh, again, like that 22-year-old Ryan Nicodemus, I, I, I don't know what I could say to him that would, uh, that would help him not dismiss all of this. And that's really what, why I'm rambling right now. I'm trying to speak to anyone who, uh, is maybe in that position. And all, all I can say is that making room and like holding space for things like this and just listening is a great first step. But just the thought terminating cliches, um, I really hope, I hope that this conversation can help people at least pause before they, before they start using any of those thought terminating cliches. But like TK, I want to you know, I want to get your opinion on on the, the the religious aspect of it because I think you know. Which, by the way, I love how you were talking about how hey, the government's not out to get us. This is not this is not a matter of the government's hiding things from you. It's from uh, from my perspective, I could see where the government would be like, oh no, if we let this out, it ruins a lot of people's perceptions. And when your perception is ruined, you will um, start to do things that you normally wouldn't do. And so there could be a bit of, you know, chaos that kind of ensues from the government saying, hey, guess what? We've been in touch with, you know, with extraterrestrials. So, yeah, TK, just going back to like the religious aspect of it, like when you think of the implications of that, I mean, does anything, I don't know, man, does anything come to mind? I mean, I, I think it can be as interesting or uninteresting as the individual religious practitioner allows it to be. Mm. Um, everything can be fun or everything can be frightening depending how you approach it, right? So you can, you can approach these possibilities from a religious perspective and say, oh, wow, okay. For the most part, every religion has already affirmed that we live in a kind of convoluted universe, mm -hmm. that we live in a universe of ultra terrestrials, right? That we live in a universe of non-physical higher intelligences. And so, hey, wh what else is possible here, right? Like, like, what does this mean? This could be really exciting or it can be really frightening too, depending on how you look at it. But I, I think if you were to take a theist and an atheist and bring them together in the room, this is probably one of the easiest things that both of them could agree on as a possibility mm -hmm. that like, yep, generally likely that there's something out there 
and no need to make any assumptions in either directions. You know, some movie will say uh, they're all going to be evil and they're going to destroy us. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, I'm open to the possibilities. Mm-hmm. Some movies will depict them as, oh, they're just going to be here to ser- serve humanity. Hey, let's see. Um, but, you know, when I think about my religion, one of the phrases that I love most is come and see. Mm. Come and see. Yeah. And, and, and I think taking it back to what Dr. Bush was saying, what it's really about. Um, it's, it's really not about aliens. It's about, it's about life itself. It's about being open to possibility mm-hmm. and it's about not being threatened by things you don't have a category for, not being threatened by questions you don't know how to ask, not being threatened by questions you don't know the answer to, and just being willing to say, Hey, all is well even though I don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. I mean, what is life? What is adventure? If you have to already have an answer for what happens next before you know what happens. Yeah, yeah. The church has been preparing for us this this topic, this release of information too. So two years ago, the Vatican came forward with a official statement saying that the God we believe in is certainly big enough to embrace life throughout the, the cosmos. Like mm. that doesn't limit our... Right. Our, our belief in God, like it, it's right. there. So, so the church itself, I think, has been preparing for us. And I think the government has been trying to prepare us for this in the best way it can. And it's trying to figure out how do we break this news without freaking out everybody, mm-hmm. A, so there's not panic in the streets and so that we don't maybe lose our jobs and look like idiots and told we're all been lying all this time or whatever. And so there's all this fear stuff is being deprogrammed. You know, Trump administration releases all the UFO data, all this we are being deprogrammed from the fear as best they can. Mm. And the religious constructs are joining that effort to mm. de-fear this thing over the last couple of years. Mm. Um, the culmination of data is getting too fast and furious because there's too much activity on the planet right now because we're on the brink. <laughs> and so this is forcing the topic to come to hand. Mm. And I would like to just back up to say that my experience is that there is deep truth in religious texts throughout the world. Mm. There's deep, resonant truth in there. And then there's a bunch of education around those experiential truths that hold differences, othering. Well, that that believes that, that believes that, that believes that. But anybody who's ever come into any religious environment and had an experience of spirituality, has had an I am moment, has, has found the truth. And so if you have ever sat in a pew of a church or sat in a synagogue or sat in a temple anywhere, and you've had a God moment, I want you to start there. That's your experiential learning. And then look up again the word education and realize you got educated on a whole paradigm to help you understand what you experienced. And that's a very small story that holds itself different than all the other stories that are explaining why somebody else had a God moment in some other culture, in some other family. Rely on the fact that you have had a true spiritual experience as a human being. It's extremely unlikely you've never touched that moment. And if you haven't, and if you really wonder what that would feel like, simply invite it. Go into silence and say, show me what it would feel like to to be in touch with source, God, whatever word you want to put on it. And, And sit in silence and sit in silence with that invitation and see what starts to happen to you. Religions are stories and narratives that made us comfortable with spiritual experiences that we couldn't otherwise explain. Mm -hmm. We, again, have an epigenetic pool of fear, guilt, and shame. 
And so why did you love the story of the Jehovah's Witness Church? Mm. It's because it was a bubble that was safe. Yeah. Yeah. I had you, all the answers. You needed the safety of that bubble. Mm-hmm. And the more you feared everything outside of you, the more rigid you had to hold on to that story. Yeah. yeah. The more people challenged it, the more armor you had to put on. Yeah. The more people told you were crazy that there's 8 billion people, you're saying 144,000 can get into heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, why are you out there preaching? Because you're not going to get bumped out of heaven, <laughs> right, dude. Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, so but when somebody says that to somebody who's in that, that safety bubble, they have to not, the bubble's not good enough. They got to put up a freaking wall and then mm. they got to put up, you know, radioactive material and they got to like, they got to get radioactive about this soft subject. Yeah. So now we have religions that are, you know, just radioactive towards each other and we justify wars and we justify destruction and raping and pillaging and everything else because your God is less than our God and we have manifest destiny and all these philosophical things that justify genocide because we're so afraid of everything else out there. And now we have these spiritual communities coming together to say, this is not something to fear. God can embrace extraterrestrial and terrestrial intelligence. We can, we can get past the fear of people is the excitement here. And as we start to relook at the truths within the scriptures, without fear, guilt, and shame, we're going to see a new story. A new narrative will emerge that is actually true to the original text. And by the way, we don't have to make the same mistakes with the topic of extraterrestrials. We don't have to become believers or non-believers. Right. We don't have to like, you know, plant a flag on, on a side of a debate. We can, we can simply be open to life because one thing about life, man, when life presents itself to you, mm. there's nothing to be believed. Mm. There is only that which is there to be lived, to be felt, to be viscerally experienced. Yeah. The w- one thing I just want to say um, before we, you know, wrap up this conversation, um, man, I love the invitation, the invitation that you are offering everyone listening to this right now. Uh, Dr. Bush, which is, um, this is not disempowering. This is empowering if you allow it to be. And when I was um, deep in that uh, Christian religion, it's very end times oriented. And, you know, I looked at the earth and people in the religion look at the earth and we're like, oh man, like it's so bad, but you know what? Nothing we can do. We just got to keep, you know, living our lives and it's in God's hands. God's going to, God's going to come back and wave his magic wand and, and fix everything. And that is, um, that's a very disempowering thing for someone. You, I love what you said. Um, so fearful of dying that we're too scared to live. And that is what uh, I grew up in was so scared of being dead forever that I had to give up my life on earth now uh, in hopes to get this second life that, um, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses were telling me that I was, I was going to have. And uh, yeah, I'm just inviting anyone who, you know, is experiencing that, that feeling of it's in God's hands. I'm not going to worry about it. It's, it's, it's more in your hands than you realize. And I think if we can rally people around just that sentiment, um, we could potentially change the just the, the course of where of where everything is going. And I'm not trying to sound all, you know, we're going to change the world, guys. But, um, you know, I hope we can change one person's world that's listening to this. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that what could I say to convince my 22-year-old self? 
that this isn't going to tear their whole world down, mm-hmm. right? And I think ultimately, maybe there's nothing you could have done or said, but we don't need to convince anyone. Yeah. What we're doing right now is, and I, I think the the whole, the beautiful thing about this and the reason that Ryan, TK, and I do this podcast together and we bring other people on is because we don't have the same spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, the same understanding of the world. We have different backgrounds and we have different perspectives as a result. And what we're doing here is we're putting some information on the table. Mm-hmm. It's almost like sharing a recipe with someone. They don't have to take that recipe and then replicate it exactly. But if there are a few ingredients from this conversation that resonate in a way, or if there's an ingredient that now sends you down a, a path of exploration, I think that's wonderful. And as we wrap up this conversation, Dr. Bush, I'm wondering what sense of hope of excitement, of joy, do you want to leave with the listener? Hmm. I am so excited that we're not going extinct. Mm. I really feel it in my bones Mm. that we are about to make a paradigm shift in human biology based on a relationship back to our original math, to the original physics of life. We are going to decode the 40 years of trauma, the 40 generations of trauma, We're going to decode all of that and we are going to become something new. All of the religions have held this end times narrative and so we created the end times. We created the apocalypse through believing that this earth was expendable because we were actually waiting for heaven. And so we destroyed the planet in the short term, realizing it wasn't important. It doesn't matter if we use it all up. Year 2000 is going to come. It's all going to be new. It's going to be here. Mm Mm-hmm. The end of something is always the beginning of the next for nature. Nature knows no end. Nature knows no story of loss or nobody loses in nature. There's only win-win scenarios. Something dies, a hundred thousand things birth out of that. Hmm. And so death is the ultimate generator of life. And so we are in this moment of generation as a planet, as a species, that we are going to generate a future that nobody can imagine for its beauty, for its biodiversity, for its intelligence. We went from dinosaurs to humans with one extinction. Mm. What comes from humans to what in our intelligence as it's expressed on this planet again? It's going to be so phenomenal. It's going to be so wide open. We will be extraterrestrial very soon. We will be able to leave Earth. We will be able to go out in the cosmos. What energy are we going to carry with us? What fears, guilts, and shames will we carry with us? Or what freedom will we find in the beauty and love? And so we have a decision point here. And I, all this information came to me because I'm running two nonprofits, one called Project Biome that's working on how does the planet actually regenerate itself from its decimated state of injury. And you go into the wound and you find out nature is already regenerating this planet for this recovery from the extinction. The elephants are amassing in Africa to regenerate North Africa from the Sahara into the greenest place on earth, which it's always been. And so we can regenerate this planet with it as we, can, as we go into the wound and stop trying to palliate our pain and start to acknowledge the pain and show that it's actually our, our progress. So the project biome is understanding that the planetary wound is ready to heal and nature is going to heal it in front of us and around us if we will step into line. Mm. If we continue to pound nature down so it can't make its recovery, then the extinction completes itself. Will we let nature recover a planet? And so Project Biome is actually where all this information came to me because people wanted us to know. 
that there is actually a pivot point happening that humanity is going to have an opportunity to come into alignment with its biology of the planet so we don't go extinct. The other nonprofit I launched is called the Institute of Natural Law, where we are taking the understanding of natural law, not just as a human system of governance that's worked for tens of thousands of years across hundreds of indigenous wisdom traditions and everything else. It's actually baked into the biology of the microbiome. It's baked into the very fabric of the atomic structure of the universe is natural law. There are systems of law of behavior that allow every generation to express more beauty, every generation to become more biodiverse. And so these systems of natural law and the system of Project Biome is why all this information came to me. As people in the leadership of these nonprofits are getting information from disparate places around the planet saying, yes, we can do this right now because it's possible because we're going to start thinking differently. Technologies are about to hit us that we can't even imagine right now because we're ready for them. Hmm. Hmm. Why haven't we been able to see the aliens? Why, like you were saying, like, you know, it was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or whatever saying, you know, show me the alien. Mm -hmm. No, because you're going to freaking kill it. Hmm. The second (laughs) you see that thing, you're going to kill it. No. Hmm. Until are you really ready, humans? stop killing and start to be comes part of a system greater than yourselves this is the tipping point we're at and this is why the information is coming out right now is they will be willing to be seen because they've been here a long time they will be willing to be seen universally in these next maybe weeks maybe months maybe years it, we are but we are right at the introduction to a galactic community because we are willing to be seen and we are willing to see them hmm it's been our unwillingness to see them that has kept them invisible to us. Mm. There could be one right in this room right now and we can't see it because we are unwilling to step into a frequency of perception that would allow us to see this thing. Mm. And we call them angels or we call them demons or we call them things. There are beings that resonate in a different frequency than the human eye can perceive. But dang it, we can feel them. Mm. We can perceive. And so when you have a loved one, who has passed away, come into the room and sit with you for a moment. You can feel that being. And with your grandmother sitting next to you on the bed one night where you feel the depression of her weight as she sits on the bedside and you hear her voice, these things are uniformly felt by humanity as we are surrounded by beings that cannot be perceived by the weak five senses of the human but can always be perceived by the high instrument, the high technology that is a human biology that is resonating in the frequency of light and it understands all light. You actually know that there's life outside of humans. You know it down at your core. You've experienced it even, but you put it in in a story of fear, guilt, and shame. So you rationalize it away from yourself, rationalize it away from your fear. And so we're coming into this moment of joy and Project Biome is just a concept of a way to witness nature recovering the planet. Institute of Natural Law is a way for us to start to understand how are we going to interrelate as humans if, if not through polarized politics? How are we going to do it? If it's not Democrats versus Republicans, if it's not Trump versus Biden, then how are we going to lead a nation? Mm. And the answer is going to look a lot more like stewardship than leadership. We're going to stop telling each other what to do and we're start listening to one another. We're going to start respecting each other and have reverence for life itself. And through that, we're going to see so much beauty that we're going to find love for everything. And we're going to see the richness of biodiversity. And we're going to make sure that every table, dinner table versus conference table versus governmental UN tables, we're going to see that it's the biodiversity that leads to the intelligence, that leads to the safety, that leads to the real expression of beauty. That would be life itself. And so this is the bubble we're in. And this is the bubble that's about to pop. 
and you're already okay, people. You already know how to be there. You already know natural law within your fabric of who you are. You know how to interact with other species, whether they be microbiome within your gut or extraterrestrial intelligence. It doesn't matter. You already know how to do it because you are made of nature and they are nature as well. This is our moment of healing things that we have carried around in a million different packages of wounds unhealed. And we have thrust weapons at one another in fear of those wounds being touched, of fear of our vulnerabilities being exposed. And so I honor each of you for being willing to have the conversation today because this is what we need to start to do as humans is we need to come around with diverse ideas, diverse perspectives, and just deal with it over a table. And if you put nourishment in the middle of that table and you put some real whole food in the middle of that table, that food will become part of the paradigm. It will become part of the narrative as it activates millions of species in and around you to interact with you through one neurology that can perceive everything. This is our opportunity to find out that we really are at the center point of all things. Nature designed intelligence through biology through an ability to concentrate light energy into what we call life. And you are alive, and that is a precious gift. And it's an opportunity right now to free that thing from every box that you can identify, open up the doors, open up the lid, and start to let the energy into a bigger space. And let yourself expand. Let yourself be seen by lions. Each of you are a lion that's looking at me right now. Mm. And it's intimidating to be looked at by humans that are starting to peel back things because you start to see more brightness and that shines into your dark corners, your shadows. I am a very imperfect being. I struggle in human relationship on every level. My colleagues, my employees, my you know, diverse government bodies, I struggle with human relationship. I am a work in progress. I am so deficient in my skills of communication to actually be able to express what I would like to express in a day. Came in with all kinds of things that I want to tell all of you. 0.001% have gotten out. And so all I can really trust is that between all of the words that have been spoken today is a frequency of resonance that carries all of the information of the universe to you. Mm. And if you will sit in that vibration, you will know all the things I never knew or never said. And so that's what human community is capable of, is transmitting all of the information of all of the universe to one another and perceive it for the gift of receiving it from somebody else. I love this phrase that you use, the frequency of healing, because it feels... I feel that in your voice and I feel that in conversations like this. And you're right. We don't get out all the words that we wish we could have said or we answer all the questions we wish we could answer. We don't bring all the evidence onto the table and there isn't every single fact that is placed in front of us that we were able to analyze. But what we did today is I feel like we opened a door. So anyone listening to this, you can go to theminimalists.com. You can check out the show notes for any of the interviews or articles that were mentioned today, the upcoming articles as well. We'll also obviously link to Dr. Zach Bush so that you can connect with him on social media or via his website or nonprofits. We'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Before I wrap it up, Ryan, I wanna I wanna I wanna wrap it up with a little bit of fun. Let's so do I, it. I want you to, to finish a, a sentence for me. <laughs> okay. It all went downhill after Okay computer. <laughs> that's, 
That's for, for our hilarious. added value segment today, <laughs> for our added value segment today, we talk about something that's added value to our lives. And Ryan and I are big Radiohead fans. And some people will call OK Computer the greatest album of all time. Here's a song from that album. It is called Subterranean Homesick Alien. <laughs> big thanks to dr zach bush for joining us today yes that is our maximal mm. episode on behalf of ryan nicodemus tk coleman malabama jordan no more professor sean danny unknown post-production peter and the rest of our team i'm joshua fields milburn if you leave here today with just one message let it be this love people and use things because the opposite never works thanks for listening y'all We'll see you next time. Peace. The breath of the morning, I keep forgetting the smell of the warm summer air. I live in a town where you can't smell a thing. You watch your feet for cracks in the pavement. Up above, aliens hover, making home movies for the folks back home. Of all these weird creatures who lock up their spirits, draw holes in themselves. Just